0: Hey everybody, this is your host, Ian. If you are listening at this point, you've made it to the third episode, which means you might actually be enjoying the podcast. If that's the case, please subscribe. It's one easy way that you can help support the podcast. And if not here, on our Instagram page or on our YouTube channel. The YouTube channel has the benefit of having some cool videos that go along with this audio that you're listening to right now. All right. Well, let's get down to it. Let me introduce our guest for today, uh, Miss Claudette Dorsey. Besides being an all around pretty amazing person, she's going to share with you her experience on the Lobster Advisory Board as well as her jaunt with the Reef Check. So I hope you enjoy. Good to go? Welcome to Ocean Folk Podcast, the podcast where we speak to people who the ocean speaks to. We explore the stories of those who explore the ocean. So Claudette Dorsey, welcome. Thank you.
1: Pleasure to be here,
0: Ian. So for those who don't know, uh, you are uh, officially a registered nurse,
1: correct? Correct. And what is your title again? You told me earlier. I'm a perioperative clinical educator. So Ooh. I'm a registered nurse with 30 years experience in nursing, and uh, I get to hang out with the coolest cats in the whole hospital, which is the operating room team.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, those guys are uh, like real-time, complex, four-dimensional problem solvers, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? Okay.
0: Uh, and But before that, you so you have a, a bachelor's in um, nursing, mm-hmm. and before that, you actually had a bachelor's in marine biology, so you're... Love of the ocean goes way back.
1: Oh, way back. I I was a skier in high school, and then suddenly there was a bad season, and I ended up spending the whole time at the beach. And I met some people who were scuba divers. I went, what? Scuba diving? Tell me more. So I ended up in high school really looking at oceans and thinking, maybe I should be a marine biologist. Jacques Cousteau was on TV all the time, and I thought that would be perfect. So I ended up going for marine biology.
0: That's so funny. Um, Jacques Cousteau is like... Such an icon for for inspiration mm-hmm. for so many people. I mean, but now I think if we look back at him now, like a lot of the science he was doing, it was like modern day would look at him and be like, "That was butchery." Yeah, <laughs> you it, know, it's crazy it, yeah. though.
1: But he was a leader of his time. Um, he there was nothing that he did knowingly wrong at the time. Yeah, of but course. Times do change, and science change, and awareness changes.
0: Well, yeah, and so many processes and technologies allow us to refine the methods Mm -hmm. that we use, which is great.
1: And sometimes science lies. When I was getting my marine biology at UCLA, the degree was really biology, and I took every marine class they had. We actually studied a paper on this crazy boat that they made that would turn vertical and drop a hook to the ground, and it would harvest manganese nodules. And we really Hold studied Time it. Time out. What yeah. is a
0: manganese nodule? <laughs> uh, on, on, on
1: the bottom of the deep sea, different minerals coagulate because of the water temperature, the density, the minerals that are coming up from the ground or s- filtering down. And there's these, truly, there are these things called manganese nodules. And it's one of the densest concentrations of manganese without having to, to mine for it. Okay. And so there, there was this pitch to start mining manganese nodules off the deep sea floor. And the story they told us, and I read the paper, and I had to write about its research results. And it turns out it was the CIA building that ship to grab a Russian submarine. No kidding. I found that out about 10 years ago. That's hilarious. And as I was reading this, I thought, this was the science I was told to consume and trust? Well, but... And they just flat out lied. So Jacques Cousteau had to work in those same type of environment, yeah. where you never know who's lying to you
0: Well, I mean... Later. It, it is, too, that science is... Sometimes people talk about science like it is a static thing. Right. And it definitely is not a static thing. It is something that is sloppy, and it's, it's almost like an algorithm that if you have this series of experiments that go and go and go, you are going to make mistakes often, but eventually you will come up with things that are concrete, and... There's some long-established things that are pretty concrete. I mean, they can be improved upon, but there's some stuff that's pretty concrete. But then there's stuff on the fringe that is not concrete at all, right? Like you got crazy experiments that they're like, this is what we think happened, but it's interpretive and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I think our, our understanding of science, and I've had this conversation with other people, our understanding of science, our scientific literacy is problematic for the average person. It's
1: partial. We're par- we're yeah. only, we're partially cited at best. And yeah. when I switched from science to healthcare, it the exact same flower bloomed. Yeah. We are partially cited at best. And things that we were told to do 30 years ago were now forbidden from doing. And look, we laugh like why would anyone do that? It was the state of the art at the time.
0: Yeah. What's a good example of that?
1: Um don't you... laugh hair removal. <laughs> um when you're going to do surgery, you always remove the hair from the surgical site. Was it site. to get, like,
0: back, a bacteria getaway? Um,
1: it... Sometimes there was thought that hair harbored more bacteria. So hmm. the original thought was, well, let's just remove all the hair. This was the 1970s and 80s, a long time ago. And uh, they used to use razors because that way you got all the hair. Oh, my God. Yeah, they literally took razors <laughs> and shaved, like, an, a, a leg. If they're going to do a knee replacement. And they shaved all the hair. And there were some pretty consistent infection rates for those big orthopedic cases. Well, you're basically
0: opening up wounds all along the dermis, right? Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, fancy word on the skin for skin dermis.
1: Microabrasions. Microabrasions, you're breaking through that seven layers of dead skin that protects your living skin underneath. And so it was in the 80s that somebody, mid to early 80s, somebody did the research to say, you must never use razors on skin, ever. And we threw all the razors out. And went over to clippers. So we leave like three millimeters of hair left on the skin. It took seventeen years before the entire country in the United States stopped using razors.
0: So that is another thing. there's a little bit of there's a lag a time.
1: Huge delay. In almost all clinical healthcare sciences, there's a seventeen year delay between oh proof at the bench to use at the bed. It's called bench to bed. And uh, it's getting better now. Uh, they're training nurses and doctors more in evidence-based practice and how to rapidly assess the environment, see what's good, and start using it and then refining it before everybody agrees with you. Well, so that's why I'm still excited and I'm still loving nursing because this has, this has grown up under me. And so now I'm on that wave going forward. It's fun.
0: Well, how much more has that been pressed forward by COVID? Like the desire oh. to get stuff to get information faster and get it into practice faster is now a life-and-death one. Yes.
1: Yeah. And and there's still a lag. Yes. And um, the last experience anything like this was HIV for me. Yeah. Uh, but it was so oh horrifically God, complicated by the hatred against the gay community. Yeah. And the, the, the brim fire and brimstone. It was science under uh, the conditions of world wrestling with Folding chairs. It was so mean. And so this is the first time that I've witnessed really a pandemic, a serious healthcare issue that's infective, and yet we're really approaching it from science. People
0: forget about HIV and how, uh, how divisive it was and how stigmified it was. Like, people called it the gay cancer. Yep. Unbelievable, right? Like, and... Then there was that crazy law passed that if you had it, you didn't have to disclose it to anyone, Mm -hmm. and you kept it private. And that was because basically rich and powerful people were also getting it because they were Mm -hmm. promiscuous. And so they're like, we're going to pass this law so we don't get tossed in with all these other people and our reputations get ruined. Mm -hmm. And they have all these secret retreats to get health treatments for this stuff. And it's insane. Thank God we don't have something like that. I mean, there was a little bit of push towards... Uh, blaming the Chinese entirely for this, which was gross and ugly and all that stuff, uh, at least as far as racial terms. But, like, now at least, like, everybody's at least got the same goal of, like, not getting this thing. I mean, there's other ugly things that have popped up, too, but...
1: Notice how excited people get when they can blame all the folks who went to restaurants and bars because they were open. Even I went for that one. I was like a dog on a bone. I finally had something to chew on. Oh, look at all these dumb people going to eat in restaurants and drink in bars. And look at their numbers now. And we're we're humans. We're all humans. And science has to... Science has to find a way to work within that humanity. And uh, it's exciting because it's people. Yeah. And I I still love it. Every single day, though, we're ready to throw out what we learned yesterday and start with what we know today.
0: Probably never truer in your your, uh, particular profession, right? We just
1: laugh about it. Somebody will ask me, but wait, aren't we using this drape? And it's like, oh, that was so last Thursday. Where have you been? (laughs) And we just tease each other. Where have you been?
0: So... You eventually got into diving. Mm-hmm. So you, inspired by Jacques Cousteau, and you started off where? Where was UCLA. your, what is your origin? <laughs> so UCLA? Okay. I
1: started it, I started really diving as a certified diver in UCLA. Uh, wait, let's see, I was 20, no, I was 18. I was 18 when I got certified. But six years prior, my mom had taken me on a jaunt to Thomas, St. Thomas Island, in the virgin islands nice yeah and uh she found a cheap place out of season and there was this gorgeous young Frenchman who was teaching f- diving in the swimming pool and my mom said she's only 12 can you do something with diving and he went oh of course <laughs> maybe i sure. and so um i actually got to dive to 35 feet in the caribbean when i was 12 That's I, awesome. I touched fire coil i had a, a welt on my hand for three days you still came back yeah i had a sunburn that peel. It was blistered ah it was amazing it doesn't
0: sound like an awesome intro
1: (laughs) but it changed my life every time i I
0: it's a very unique ah, experience
1: it was like diving into a dr seuss book Mm -hmm. it was nothing like anything i'd ever seen and that's really what prompted me to stick to biology mm -hmm. and go to ucla but it took me until 18 to finally get certified i was a starving student i had no money Mm -hmm. and ucla ran a 10-week certification program for 118 dollars
0: so, did you, did you have the same experience that I had when you watched the movie Avatar? Have you seen that movie? I have not. Whoa! I flipped, you're the you're the I one flipped of the few. out over Nemo. <laughs> okay.
1: Finding Nemo. So, me out. if you
0: watch Avatar, okay, the Blue People movie, if the, you haven't seen it, no, the Blue I People not, movie. Not at all. You watch that movie, and you go like, oh, James Cameron, okay, he just took underwater stuff and made it above water stuff, like, All the weird stuff, minus, like, the flying dragons and stuff like that. But all the plants that everybody's like, this is so weird and cool. I'm like, no, this is the ocean. Ocean. What are you doing? It's like, he's he's a big-time ocean guy. He did his, uh, what was it, the Challenger or whatever that went all the way down the deep. So he's inspired. But it's funny that you mention a Dr. Seuss book, too, because a lot of his books were actually inspired by – he lived in La Jolla.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so
0: you know the story?
1: Absolutely. And he saw what he saw in the ocean. He just took all that wildness and brought it up to his artwork. Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So you got, from there, you got certified at UCLA.
1: Yeah, Ten. it was a 10-week long. It was almost like boot camp. They made, us, they made us be like heroes in the water. It was the toughest class that I could imagine. I thought, why am I doing this? Oh, because I have to. Uh, and then they offered a 10-week quarter at Catalina. Oh, wow. So UCLA would rent out the Catalina Science Center next to the compression gen- recompression chamber. Oh, yeah.
0: Isn't that USC's property? It, it
1: belongs no. to USC, but yeah. they rented it every fall to UCLA, oh. which was beyond us. That's the best season of the whole world. And they would rent it to the Crosstown Rivals. Great. So Rivalries weren't as
0: deep back then, I it's don't think. It's true. Yeah. But
1: I did 16 units. Uh, the professors would come to us. There was a full wet laboratory. We had two whalers, little whalers. We had a whole scuba tank. Um rack of tanks we were free to pretty much dive around the clock we just had to tell somebody before we left oh, that's awesome so for 10 weeks i went nuts from 30 <coughs> from 35 feet and up it was it was all shallow diving but man it was great that was my first real hands-on wet science
0: mm. it was great so were you away from it at that point uh for a while or how did you because i found out that you were at least stayed in touch with it through getting involved with an organization called reef and so, and we briefly had some conversation about this. Um, not that you were an official spokesperson. You were just a happy volunteer and a dedicated oh, yeah. volunteer. I have unintentionally ran into you on the beach and you're like, hey, you want to dive with me? And I'm like, sure, <laughs> I don't mind diving. And you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm doing reef check. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I'll, I'll hang out with you underwater.
1: Yeah, it did, it did get dormant. And reef check came back to me at the right time um, because I, the, you're younger than me at, No. Come on. At sixty-one, my zone of memories has gone through eons. It's almost like there's different fossilized levels. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I dived my face off from college until two years after college. Okay, uh, And I was connected to a lot of researchers, and so they would use me as a research diver. They oh. put me in a little camper with three other divers, and we drove down to the tip of Baja, and we sampled a particular fish from both Pacific and Sea Cortez, and we took out their livers, and we put them in dry ice. And when they brought them back, they ran them through mass spectrometers to see when did they speciate along the wow. Pacific coast and along the... Um, Cortez site.
0: Some fun little vivisections. That's it was cool.
1: wild. The fishermen yeah. would say, why do you want that? It's no good to eat. I'm like, well, we need it. Yeah. So I did that as much as I could. And then um, I was ready to go to grad school for biology. Yeah. And I, by that time I'd been working in a laboratory, biochem lab at UCLA. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating. Seven people that lived like monks had no lives were working on their PhDs. They would stretch out pipettes with Bunsen burners to see you'd, you'd 75 feet off a tiny glass pipette, and then they'd tape them to the walls in the hallway. It was a different world, and I'm a pretty gregarious person. Yeah, and I started to think I'm not cut out to be a science monk. And the yeah. PhD programs I was heading toward were very much like that. Yeah, It wasn't my personality, and I'm not quite panicked, but I certainly froze and said, maybe not. And the one I wanted most said no, so that was my way out to say, I'm going to think about it for another year. And that summer, I met six people who were registered nurses, and they were skydiving, kayaking, cross-country bicycle touring, um, all these really great activities, and they were nurses. And I loved science, and I kept grilling them for that. And they could tell me enough of science and healthcare that it looked good. So I threw my hat in the ring to UCLA, went back to UCLA for a nursing degree, and I was never so miserable in my life, and I had to stop diving because I had no time and no life. Nursing school oh, yeah. melts you, basically melts you with a flamethrower, and then remolds you at the end and says, "Sorry, <laughs> but now you're good." So it took me uh, two and a half years to get the nursing degree. Oh wow! And then I went to work full time, and two and a half years later, two years later, I was on the open heart team. We were flying in helicopters to get. Parts from different wow. hospitals and fly them back and implant them at UCLA it was pretty exciting stuff and then they asked me to be an educator so oh, wow. I stepped over to be a nursing educator and then perfect person in my life came in got married had a child took four years off okay just quit work yeah. and stayed home and so in that long stretch I had not dived for almost five or six years
0: wow how, how crazy is it I haven't done that yet I even snuck in, I just, I had my daughter nine months ago, mm-hmm. you met her earlier, but even in that stretch, I, I managed to sneak out and get some diving. I haven't had a long stretch. Is it hard to come back?
1: Uh, well, don't laugh because it was, in, <laughs> it was 19 years till I came back. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and drill wow, on that coffee. That is
0: quite a stretch.
1: But in those 19 years, I was a competitive fencer. <laughs> I was. Of course, you were. I sailed. Natural naturally. transition. Naturally. <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> I, Who I, doesn't
0: dabble in competitive fencing?
1: But the funny thing is, is that I treated diving like another activity: okay. cross country skiing, downhill skiing, remote mountain biking, road biking, competitive fencing. Um, I did sailing, Hobie cat sailing. I treated everything like a sport. Mm-hmm. And then my son was finally thirteen. We went to see Nemo. And I said, why am I not diving? And uh, I came back to diving. And it wasn't a sport anymore. It became this inner voyage to look at a natural part of the world and not impose anything on it, just be in it. Mm. I wasn't counting my dives. I wasn't trying to go as deep as I could, possibly could, which was, had always been a joke before. How deep did you go this time? And it, I just saw this world like it was there and i was watching it and the more i would watch and not conquer it the better it would be it was transformative so it's like i did two different sports five mm. six years of adventure science diving for a sport and then i came back a much more mature person and found a whole nother level
0: i think it's i think it's uh, hard to describe to somebody who hasn't done it what it is like to be a a visitor it feels like being a visitor to uh, an underwater reef if you don't know i try and describe to people who are just getting into diving i say like the beginning is uncomfortable it just is right but once you get past that discomfort you can kind of slip into this other world and kind of slide by with like minimal impact and just uh there's so much beauty and there's so much uh, experience involved, and you can just kind of watch what happens, and you get a view into. It is almost like going to a. Uh, this sounds so cliche. Going <laughs> to another planet. Ooh, but it is. It's going to another planet where the rules that you were kind of guided by don't even apply. So you get these creatures that are completely different looking, uh, live completely different, and you just. It's good reflective environment. It's good for you. You it's a it's a rare experience where you can be in the moment. Mm-hmm. And and you don't get that a lot these days. Not I think much. maybe when you started diving there was more of that. Like but in the modern, no, We were day, mission man.
1: driven. I mean we yeah, were mission there you go. driven. This was a hardcore export level thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, they drilled us on an Olympic sized swimming pool constantly to be stronger and smarter and harder and you were out to conquer the ocean. Yeah. The gear didn't help you as much. No. So you had to have tougher stronger skills not to diminish it there's nothing as wonderful as an auto inflate backbound bc oh my god it's awesome oh yeah but i didn't have anything like that back then
0: no no, no. So it's a that's a different game
1: you had to muscle it more and uh there was i think there was less energy for just goofing off uh,
0: well and i think i think depending on your you know where you are in, in diving or when you got certified in diving like, people talk about the good old days where it was like boot camp. Mm-hmm. And as that started to wane, because the technology and the devices that you could, you could employ became easier to use and things like that, and it started to become a softer, uh, more user-friendly experience, uh, there's certain people who resented that because it didn't require as much from the individual, which I get. Like, those are, there's a continuum there, right? Like there's, you have to be really on your game in order to make this thing work, and there's, you know, you don't have to really put anything into this, and you can still have kind of the same experience, and there's benefits to both of those. Mm-hmm. I think we're kind of in the middle now, you, and I think now you can start soft and work your way up to more complicated diving. Oh
1: my god, yes. People yeah. are doing way more intensive diving now than they did 25, 30 years ago, uh, yeah, there's no limits to people, but yeah. there is a something about humanity that admires people who accomplish things that are tough. And sometimes you just want to find something that's tough, so you get that feeling, mm-hmm. that right stuff, kind of conquering the world feeling. I think it's and I
0: think it's central to who we are,
1: in a way. You but, know, I think
0: but, like I think people who feel like they've accomplished a difficult task, it's not only good because like it makes you feel better about yourself mm-hmm. because you know you've put that time in. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and you feel the results and you see the results. And uh, anything that's easy, you sort of move right by.
0: So. Yeah. So, so you went through the intensive kind of uh, goal-driven diving, and then you came back to it, and you came into this more reflective, experiential, in the moment kind of diving. Yeah. And, and it, was a, it was life-changing.
1: It was amazing. And I was surrounded by suddenly recreational divers instead of science divers. different vibe yeah and I just saw people having a lot of fun yeah and and, uh, it it opened the doors where I got to choose what diving would mean for me and I know I needed a lot of time in the cockpit so I just dived my mind up my brains out frantically for about a year to get back into feeling really good in the water and then I started to look around and see how many different ways there were to dive Mm. and uh, so I started switched over to a different practice some different gears uh, connected with some different people. Uh, got certified through a GUE, which is this very balletic style of diving. And Balletic? You to, yeah. You, help you, help
0: us layman's out. What um, is balletic? Is that like, uh, it, like you, a discipline?
1: Uh, it's to be, uh, if you think of someone dancing it, in ballet, okay, they have so. massive muscles, but their interaction with the floor is precise. It's precise like and delicate. One toe on the floor, and you need the balance of your body. Uh, like jiu-jitsu, it, it's not muscles, it's balance and motion. And you can dive like you're taking a hike. You can dive like you're bicycling. You can just athletically kick, 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 go here, go there, come up when you're done.
0: But it's not a symphony of movements.
1: I, yeah, I noticed this group that had stability in the water where they just floated without moving. Literally, their hands were out in front doing nothing. They could have been knitting for all they needed their hands for. Yeah. And their fins were behind them, and they did this weird thing called a frog kick. And they communicated with each other in a way I'd never seen anybody communicate. And I loved being in the ocean so much that with good buddies, to add those extra grammatical terms to be able to talk underwater with gestures and eyes. Like, whatever you guys have, I want some of that. And so once I got into that, then everything opened up from photography to scooter diving to reef check. To reef check. (laughs) Because reef check came along and... Sends you underwater with a whole basket of tools. And a, so how did you, you discover know. it? Oh, uh, let's see. Again, I was diving like crazy. Yes. And I had uh, buddies who wanted to dive more. And in scuba board, this little group called Reef Check started posting that they were starting classes in January to be an official reef checker for California. And the, the bait to pull people in to try something that was so weird was you would get a free two or three day, three day boat trip, I think free three-day boat trip and at that point i was like boat trip yeah exactly <laughs> just, just waving tuna in front of a cat at that point right um and then i read about it and it was science-based citizen action that would support the marine life act from way back in the 90s they needed to find a way to survey reefs with good science good qa and uh, QA. measure uh, quality of quality assurance You send people out to gather data, and then someone's got to look at the data with uh, a template, and bad data needs to be thrown away, and you have to learn when there's drift in your data collectors and go back and say, okay, you're, you're identifying this thing wrong. We need to fix it. So in order to get your data in the state of California accepted to the legislative review that manages MPAs, fishing rights, boating access, everything, your data has got to be precise. And it's based on the UC model. You see all the UC campuses came up with something called PISCO, P-I-S-C-O. Don't remember what it stands for. But it was a way that every UC could compile data from their area, and it would be acceptable to all reviews and all management issues. And they've never, ever done it with volunteers, ever. They had tried and failed. And so they put out this request to all the nonprofits and said, we want you to give us less than 15 pages. How would you propose to harvest the dedicated energy of citizen divers to gather good data and to understand it so that over decades, we could now rely on one more source of data? And when I read that, I was like, oh, oh, I got to be in. Yeah, yeah.
0: that's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, we, we were class 001. Ooh. The, uh, the, no, the, the uh, notebook that, that they gave us was spiral bound and it had, we counted them 102 errors in it because we just kept finding it. And they oh were God. so grateful because they said, we need you. We need you to check this stuff. So we were the first class in.
0: That's crazy. It so was great. So uh, you mentioned, was the Marine Protection Act mm-hmm. uh, in the 1990s? That was the law that helped establish um, the MPAs. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. It,
1: it was actually voted upon by the population of California. And, and
0: MPAs, they, let me just clarify, is marine protected areas. correct? Okay. Because I, I mentioned that to my girlfriend. Yeah. She's like, what's an MPA?
1: Yeah. And the uh, the Ocean Act said that you have to use best available science. Mm-hmm. You have to protect the marine resources, both for its innate life and its usability to humans and its interaction with other ecosystems around it. We, okay. we had to protect the ocean. We had to use best available science. And any protected areas that were going to be closed had to be based on solid evidence and science. And if the science didn't support that they was working, you should reopen those areas. So they put all of these things into the legislation and then said, go for it. And it, they spent 16 years making mistake after mistake. They'd set them up, take it down, set them up, take it down. Everybody fought over everything. And then, well,
0: yeah. Change and, is hard. Change is hard. And so do you know why any of them failed particularly? I'm not sure. I, there I was wasn't no, aware.
1: They were, they were, there was no support from the entire community. Okay. The scientists would say, we have to close this whole area because it's a, it's a protected place for larva for this priceless fish. And we need this. And the fishermen would go, there's plenty of fish out there. And so there's not enough enforcement. The communities were fighting with each other. The sport fishermen, the commercial fishermen, the ocean users, and um, scientists, all four groups were basically in corners shooting at each other. And so every MPA failed because there was no consensus. So So. (laughs) I remember when they redid it. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, that, and, that was amazing.
0: Was it? I It sounded, again, almost like the Four Corners, but they brought everybody together, which yes. was different.
1: They, yes, they committed, they looked at what failed, and they realized that the profession of professional uh, facilitators mm-hmm. actually do what they're supposed to do. So they hired a group of very skilled professional facilitators to pull together these blue chip panels, and it had to what have... Why is it
0: blue chip? I don't I, understand that. I, is that just like a... Like a saying that they're the most important figures in that? Uh, I've heard that expression I don't know, I don't before. Know,
1: I don't know why they use that term, but it was just for them to show that it was a standardized process, and each panel had to be made up of specific types of people. So right, so representatives
0: say, from all the groups, right, all the stakeholders. And, and
1: by number. Okay. And so, and then each group had to carefully choose who they wanted to represent them, so the sport fishermen, the commercial fishermen. And there was a lot of jockeying to say, you have to be willing to, to collaborate and The interview process was pretty hard to get into that. And if you weren't willing to listen and collaborate, they wouldn't take you. So the The professional facilitators had a way to try to get people who were willing to collaborate. And that's when they could see where they wanted the MPAs. And they realized there was no way they had enough divers in the water to get any data to support the success or failure of the MPAs so yeah. that they were trying to do everything they could to get more divers in the water gathering good data. Because they had dismantled the entire Pisco underwater science system through the UC, they had defunded it. So uh, when they started with the original legislation, there were so many scientific divers making, you know, $40, $50 an hour. It was really top-level work to get this great data. And it's expensive. though. That's it's 40 or $50 expensive. an hour. Is to Because the MPAs, there's, there's, I mean, at least... I think there's 60, don't quote me, there's many of them.
0: (laughs) There's many of them, but it's hundreds of square miles.
1: Yes, it's about 13% of the California coast. The scientists wanted 30, or 27 to 30, and then they got ended up with 13%, I think.
0: Oh, they wanted 30% of the coast.
1: Mm-hmm. But based on science, based on maximal support of larva and maximal settling rates and recruitment, all of these things that measure a population's ability to reproduce itself and adapt to bad years or bad seasons or bad events, uh, the resiliency of animals. They know how far eggs drift. They know how far fish swim. And all in all, for our eastern Pacific temperate ocean, yeah. They said there's only the MPAs have to be no more than this far from each other to help each other support life.
0: Do you know? Do you know how they had how far they wanted uh, it to be?
1: They, um,
0: Wasn't it like I, a couple miles?
1: No, it was more like twenty miles. Oh, really? Yeah. And okay. the Santa Monica Bay failed because the last. Well, there's MPA, a gap in the middle. Right? a huge gap. Yeah, because there's one out in
0: Malibu around Point Doom. Point correct? Doom yeah. is
1: the last one, and then there is not another MPA until Point Vicente. Until yeah. Yeah. And so that's just a an unconscionable gap. But again, this is science speaking, and science has got to work with culture.
0: Well, it's weird. I'm very well. I guess there's a couple artificial reefs that that sports fishermen probably really like. But mm-hmm. I feel like they could put a nice little one in the middle, mm-hmm. like in Hermosa.
1: Oh, there were so many wins and losses. There yeah. were so many. If you if you take a group and crush them and they lose. That's like World War I, and then you get World War II later on. Right. So they were so careful. Don't crush any particular group. They didn't crush the commercial fishermen or the sport fishermen or the, yeah. uh, the happy surfer boat users. They had to give and take, and the 13% was where science gave mm. and said, okay, for a perfect world, we would have gotten more of them and closer. But you know what? This is a lot better than nothing.
0: Well, I think in... Correct me if you got the sentiment from that time period when it was going out. Uh, commercial fishermen and recreational fishermen and even some scuba divers looked at MPAs as um, like a totalitarian ban on human existence.
1: Kind of like wearing a mask. Well, <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't help. Sorry. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, it, but not, people, I wasn't going to go you know, there. It, people, but... people don't like having rights taken away. We're a very free society. And well, in the Constitution of California, do you know that the use of the ocean is a guaranteed constitutional right for every citizen in California?
0: Oh, listen, every time Surf Rider battles somebody in Malibu to yeah. get to keep them from locking the gates so that people can go down it, it's a good thing. I, I like that.
2: yeah, I think
0: and, it's a good thing. i I think uh, you know, but just like anything, it's an interesting idea when you say, okay, but can you limit that slightly and increase the benefit across the board for everybody's experience? And, you know, I talk to people about this. I'm like, you've dove probably the MPAs more than anybody I know. Uh, There is a difference. Oh Yeah. There's a, there's a very big difference um, in the experience there. Now, some are better than others, but yeah, it, I think it matters.
1: But you're a photographer and I'm a recreational diver who loves diving with photographers. So, what we see as improvement is stunning, but to other people who don't use the ocean that way, it's invisible. Yeah, it's like that's red true. if you're colorblind. Well,
0: I mean, listen, Haggerty's, I think Haggerty's has benefited tremendously because I, I, I lobster hunt and I spearfish. You know, I don't, there's certain fish I won't take because I. it's, it's just not sport and I feel like you're harming the general reef there. Right. I understand why people do it, but are you, you know, I try and pick and choose and be very responsible with what I take. But Hagerty's has come along, and I think it's in part because of— It's not protected. Of, it's not protected. No. But I think it's benefited. Mm-hmm.
1: Totally. I think
0: I think there's overflow. I don't have any—this is completely anecdotal, but I think Palos Verdes having an MPA on it— mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it helps. And I think there's spillover.
1: And the MPA is in a, such a high, uh, high drift, high current area yeah. that— all the waters that wrap around in both directions. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that many times. Like if you had and to they shift one, depending on the type of the year. What a great place to put an MPA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well,
0: and it's good, too, because it, it, in case anybody who's listening doesn't understand where Point Vicente is, if you were to look at a map of Santa Monica Bay, at the bottom of Santa Monica Bay, you have Palos Verdes. Palos Verdes is this little nub on California that sticks out into the Pacific, and the MPA is on the tip of that nub. And so during parts of the year, the water flows one direction. During other parts of the year, it flows the other direction across that. And if you have any kind of El Nino or anything, it reverses across. So it has a very good opportunity for spreading other fish or allowing those fish to go either south or north, which is, you know, exactly what you want. So those fishermen who maybe lost some territory to fish also gain fish in other areas, Mm -hmm. theoretically. I don't know if that's true. I don't... I haven't looked at the research, but that's that was the goal of putting it there from what I remember. Yeah.
1: And it is showing that. It is showing that both Redondo uh, fishermen and San Pedro fishermen, the, the fishing has gotten a little bit better. But then our water temperatures change. changed. There's many confounding factors. Right. There's so many variables. It's and, hard to point to
0: one right. and say that's it. And
1: science definitely wanted more area of PV closed off because mm-hmm. it's such a rich environment. But the fishermen were just aghast and so they talked long and hard rocky point made it smaller there you go rocky point exactly uh rocky point was commercial fishermen were
0: about to burn down the state well not commercial but recreational fishermen were about to burn down the State if they were at close Rocky Point, they yes. were like, "That is our spot. Don't yeah. do that." To and us. that's
1: what facilitation brought to us a knowledge yeah. of, "Do not kill your enemy because your enemy will not go away, and they will destroy everything you rebuild." So well, it and it, let's
0: let's not call everybody enemies Anyways. here, but opposing views, interests, mm-hmm. opposing interests, yeah.
1: But it was the it was the background fighting that killed all the MPA attempts up mm-hmm. until that one. Yeah, and then. Written into it is: you must monitor. If you can't monitor, then you will have to remove your MPA. You must show it works. So, so that's where we've checked it. out in. of it. Okay. Yeah. Craig schumann was a, a PhD student, and I think he used Dr. Seuss in his dissertation: "One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish," because he, solid science. Solid <laughs> science. <laughs> like, and and so he wrote this beautiful proposal of how to simplify the higher level UC data that was gathered to something that a lay person could do uh, recreationally and then to have a background of enough scientists to check the data and to monitor the process year in year out so that every year you must be recertified if there's changes in the environment uh, philocinum horneri that horrible sargassum golden weed that took over everything yeah we it's been choking out
0: a lot of the kelp
1: reef check has the very first official data of any group other than one place uh, down in San Diego but we just noticed it on our first surveys and we just kept writing it in and the very next year it was listed on our survey sheets along with how to measure it how to quantify it and how to count it like, Wow so that's how, now it's everywhere and, and Craig put that into the very initial proposal he, he knew the high-level academic science so well and He has such faith in people and love for the ocean that he said, I can do this. I can bring these two groups together with enough accuracy and we'll grow as things change. And it's perfect. It's just we've made errors and we've gotten better every year.
0: That's great. So in the monitoring of the MPAs, um, how often do they go out? Do you know? The surveyors? Yes, the surveyors.
1: Um, most of the the goal now is to take every single MPA and to get Reef Check Divers as a component to their surveys there. They want to do every single site once a year minimum, twice a year optimally. Because okay. it is a temperate ocean, and so we do have spring seasons and fall seasons. Yeah. So ideally we'll do a spring-summer, and then we'll come back and see it again at the end of fall. For are, temperature
0: there, are there some sites that are more frequent in it just because people are willing to go on their own? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: Sometimes there are people who really like particular reefs and they'll do more surveys there. Um,
0: And do you need like a quorum of a certain amount of people to go out on a reef to get out and do a check?
1: um, They built it so that you can use the resources you have. Like Los Angeles, we have a lot of divers. So if we can just put six divers together, we can do the entire reef in two dives. If we have only... If we have 12 divers, we can all do one dive, and every single survey sheet is done. I think there's 37 sheets, and you have to roll out 18 90-foot lo- lines, and you have to count uh, invertebrates, fish, uh, seaweed, and then you have to quantify the bottom, the rugosity, how how steep is it, how rocky, how sandy, how much cobble. You do this snapshot assessment, and okay. six people can do it in two, d- two dives. And, and,
0: all- and so... Um- Everybody kind of gets together, they pick a boat, or how, how, do they, how does this all get organized? Well,
1: they tried it where individual groups would organize themselves the very first year. And it was fun. Cats herding cats. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then we'd run into bad weather and we'd give up on a site and it never got done. And they realized they needed a, um, a volunteer coordinator. So mm-hmm. the next year, I was half time. They actually paid me half time to be a volunteer coordinator oh, no to good. figure out which reefs we were going to use, figure out which boats, what we could do by land. Um get enough divers together and then keep track of if you don't finish the entire survey, you can come back within six weeks and get the pieces you missed wow the, he organized it so well that he even took that into account
0: i mean that's a real thing in California with Weather. diving is like not every time you go out it's sunshine and glory like yep. it it can be it can be some rough seas you can get one dive in and not a second dive in yeah um I've had some rush dives where i've Got out of the water and been like, oh, the storm rolled in while we were underwater and you got to pull up anchor and there's water coming over the front of the boat. And you're <laughs> like, OK, let's go.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I could
0: see why he would see that if he's experienced. Oh, definitely. Yeah.
1: So that helped. I learned a lot. And then the next year they hired a full time coordinator. Oh, good. And so they've had a um, volunteer coordinator for both Orange and L.A. County and Central and North. Everybody's got coordinators. And they literally put out a calendar now. They plan ahead, and then they recruit people to those dates. Because wow. people got busier over the last 10 years. We've all got a Google Calendar, and we've all got streaming things that we're going to. It's We're really busier people now. So and, they took control of the calendar, and yeah. then they just rouse people to come. So what is the coolest thing you've seen
0: on a reef? Like, uh, well, we'll say reef check and beyond, but... Let's just give people an idea of kind of the neat things you've seen out while diving.
1: Oh my gosh, uh, the fun part is that if something big comes along and it's on the transect line, you get to record it. Don't laugh, we're such nerds. But something we were,
0: big. How big is, is big to oh, you?
1: Oh, like a eight foot giant sea bass. There you go. That's, That's a big, big one. Yeah. So uh, we were surveying Casino Point, and it was mating season. So. You could look down and see 10, 12 giant sea bass at a time. When is
0: mating season for General July, Blacksutas? August.
1: Ah. Yeah, July, August is the big party in the kelp forest.
0: Okay. And, uh, I may have yeah. to make a trip out to Casino Point oh, soon.
1: It's spectacular. Just spectacular. But here we are all geared up with our survey. we have got our slate and our pencils and our uh, transit lines. And we're down on the ground facing the rocks. And above us are 13 giant sea bass. And our Ooh. job is to do the work. And we're counting fish. We're counting one-inch and two-inch fish. And I look over my shoulder, and there's two giant males looking at me. And then we're hopefully not in a romantic tone. No, No, they get they defend their girls. They Uh, they bark. They bark at you if you get too close. Uh, And then uh, every single one of us on that dive had at least one sea bass swim across our transect. So we got to record it, and then we got to argue over how big it was. Like how many centimeters was it? I don't know. It was big. (laughs) Yeah,
0: they're hard to judge size because they are just an imposing force. They're massive.
1: Yeah. And then uh, just lobsters. It's so fun to find lobster. It's so fun to find octopus. When you roam around with a camera, you find them all the time. But this becomes like a Sudoku game where I've only got a six meter swath and 30 meter distance. And in that rectangle, how much can I find? And when you start finding it's virus, a scavenger hunt, it's a scavenger hunt. It's a scientific
0: time. scavenger hunt. That's yep. super fun.
1: It is. And then to, to see things change, to come back to the same place year after year and watch the kelp level change or the fish change.
0: That is one thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is, um, the joy of diving a spot regularly. Some people dive a spot and they're like, Oh, I've seen it. I'm good. Like whatever they saw on that particular day. Um, But if you go back to a given location, you get a sense for its seasonality. Yes. And you get a sense for the variance in the types of things that you see. You know, you see one critter come in during this time of year, and you see another one come in during another time of year. And, you know, they don't kind of coexist, or they vaguely coexist at different times. And you see, uh, like you said, mating behavior where everything comes in. uh, And... There's, you know, other times where they're not there at all.
1: Right. Or there's a year where there's suddenly um, seahorses at Veterans Park. Seahorses.
0: <laughs> that year.
1: <laughs> crazy. That
0: year blew my mind.
1: Yeah. So variety is fun, but when it's your own backyard and you've dived it many times, it's fun. And, the, and Reef Check does that for you. It takes you back to the same place year after year, or you pick different areas, and there's just this sense of knowledge. Um,
0: you really get familiar with the place.
1: You do. And I... I loved, in college, knowing the names of all the seaweed, the fish, the invertebrates. I had to. It was for a test. And it, I felt really good about knowing that. And then I forgot it all. And when I came back to diving for fun, it was really hard to learn everything. And it was like going to work for, at a new job and not knowing anybody or what they do. And Reef Check offered to teach us all that again. And it was like a new job. And suddenly I knew what Garibaldi did, and I knew what a Senorita fish did, and why they look like female rockrass, but they're not. And it was fun to get to know the names and what they do. And then I'd go down to my favorite reef, and I'd recognize what was going on.
0: Well, how true is it the more you know what the fish are, the more you see them?
1: Absolutely. When your brain yep. remembers a name, mm-hmm. now you remember what it does. And then you remember next time it does something different.
0: I always, know when I always know when I'm diving with, like, a, a reef check volunteer because they'll be like, did you see the blah, blah, blah algae? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't know the names of algae. I have no idea. It's the red-green one that kind of looks like a wavy thing. Okay, yeah, I saw that. But they get excited because they're like, oh, that's kind of unusual. But you, if you're not, if you don't know the name of it, if you don't know what it is. So I see a higher level of... Uh, awareness of the reef when i dive with somebody who does reef check
1: oh yeah you just you got to be a a geek and a nerd to do it well you do because it's so much fun and you work really hard and there's that sense of camaraderie and mission accomplished and in our second year of reef check they connected with the department of fish and wildlife it's now called it used to be called fish and game and then they changed it to fish and wildlife
0: that was a weird change
1: um well because animals aren't just important because they're food. <laughs> That's, oh, that yeah. was it. It doesn't care. We don't care if you eat it or not. It's still wildlife. Yeah. So it actually that was a sense. pretty good change. And um, in Reef Check, we was auditioning to get their data accepted. And in the second year, they finished the paperwork. And in the third year, I think we were granted an MOU, a memorandum of understanding. Yeah, okay. That our data, as presented to that point, qualif- Checked every box. And that as long as we continued to, to record what we did, to quality assure it, to keep track about 10% of our data we collect, we throw away, because somebody looks at it and says, this person was missing a whole type of fish here. Every other survey on this reef, all 11 other people saw this fish and this person didn't. And then we, they'll call you on the telephone and say, tell me about that dive you recorded last Saturday. And it turns out that that person thought that that was fish wasn't to be counted. They didn't recognize it as an indicator species. So oh, weird. It, it's fascinating that they, because we're constantly introducing new divers to the team and more experienced divers move on to other things, yeah. we have to constantly prevent drift. Yeah. So the of, memorandum of understanding said, if you keep doing this level every year, we'll talk with you and your data will be accepted. That's cool. If you fall apart and lose this ability, then we'll no longer take your data. But our data... When they say they accept it, it means that they're legally bound to account for it. If our data shows that an um, MPA has made a huge difference in some really important fish like kelp bass, and there's no other data, they're not allowed to take the MPA away because there is existing data they've accepted that shows it's working. They're cool. not allowed to, re- to ignore it. That's what an MOU does for you. Yeah, that's, wow, pretty, everybody's, that's pretty powerful. We squared our shoulders and sharpened our pencils. It's like... They're listening. Yeah. This this is working. Yeah. So that's where we are now. They've gone through multiple fantastic leaders. Many people work for it as a non-governmental organization, an NGO. And then they do this really good work. And then they step up to a paid consultant job somewhere. So we get a lot of people who are really hungry and great leaders. Yeah. And then they move through.
0: I mean, even if they can do some good work and use it as a stepping stone to a better position, mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah. It was, um,
1: it was Craig Schumann's first job, I think, out mm-hmm. of grad school with his brand new wet and crying PhD. Yeah. And then he now works for the Department of Fish and Wildlife.
0: Oh, how cool. He's
1: awesome. Yeah.
0: What is his position there? Do you know? I don't remember. Okay.
1: <laughs> I just remember when he...
0: Google it, fellas. <laughs> yes. Um, So, uh... This is a big deal because it means that uh, these MPAs are around and they're going to stay around, which means these areas are protected and hopefully we see fish uh, fish and invertebrates and all the rest of it grow and populous in California, which means a denser biomass underwater and... A more beautiful landscape if you are in the underwater field or a more opportunistic uh, place to hunt or fish, right?
1: It is. It's such a It's a qualitative betterness. If you like whales, you better care about squid. Yeah. If you like squid, you better care about fish larva. Yeah. Um, And it's such a massive web, and human activity is... Inter- interacts with the ocean a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be judgmental about it, but human activity affects the ocean dramatically. Yeah, not even the highest level of global warming, but just what we do in terms of point pollution, noise, yeah. uh, oils, liquids, uh, mining, everything.
0: Where you where you oh. throw your trash yes. matters. Matters to the ocean, especially in California, where our entire um, water removal system for like rainwater and everything Mm -hmm. it all is designed to just go push right into the ocean which is counterintuitive to nature which has wetlands
2: exactly and
0: ours is the opposite it's just like dump it right in the ocean as is whatever trash was on the street is now in the ocean whatever oils whatever pollutants whatever you know gasoline or you know right into the ocean and that is one (laughs) of the reasons heal the bay is a big deal
1: huge deal yeah And, and uh uh, Waterkeeper.
0: Waterkeeper is a big, a good Ma- one too.
1: Amazing. So there's a lot to do, and the more resiliency that you can protect, really protected areas just allow natural life will find a way resilience mm-hmm. to not be crushed by yeah. the effects of humanity. And yeah. some it it can't hurt, and it's probably helping. And all the science says it's helping. Everything from fish to uh, lobster, invertebrates, seaweed, the protected areas do better. They recover faster. Yeah, and they just have a more profundity, more diversity, and more biomass.
0: Which is which is you know I, I, we all have a tendency to look at something and not be able to touch it and be like, oh, that's that's bad. I wanna I want that, but in this particular instance, I think uh, I think we all benefit. Yes. You know, it's a slow, hard to register benefit, mm-hmm. but it's something that uh, when it when it plays out, you know the people who use the ocean, interact with the ocean, get a much richer experience.
1: Definitely. It's just thinking for the future rather than just today. You can yeah. fish, you can catch every fish you can. Um, and then when the fish disappear, people have just shifted to a different kind of fish and not learned from the data. Uh, kelp bass completely crashed. Really? What the, was this? Within the last decade. Oh. Within the last 10 years, the kelp bass population in Southern California crashed but they had all the numbers because they've been watching it so closely yeah so they actually did adjust fishing permission permissions and uh, amount you could take and they adjusted some things Well to, it went from
0: 12 inch take to a 14 inch take correct
1: which is massive in terms of fish time yeah yeah it gives them two three four more years of reproductive time okay. like lobsters I mean if our lobsters are doing okay right now mm-hmm. but on the books if they needed to they could require them to be a quarter inch bigger or a half inch bigger. And it's sitting there as one of the tools to be used should the population crash, along with a few other tools. I thought the
0: lobster population was pretty stable. In it California. is stable. It's, it's kind remarkably of...
1: Remarkably stable. Right.
0: Like that was one of the few things that um, was seen as a success in California mm-hmm. management was that, um, I mean, lobster stores in the way of recording data on lobster seems very stable, very good, and
1: it it, yeah. it had some horrible problems, and then it suddenly got better. The original traps had no back doors, and so when they would do heavy commercial fishing, they stripped the lobsters, and the population almost disappeared. And then someone invented a small back door so that when they Explain would... Explain what that back door is oh, uh, and what it Lobster does. traps are like chain-link fence, sort of. Uh, they're
0: chicken wire. Chicken wire, they're yeah.
1: rectangular, they're what, about two feet? Two, three feet across, a Two feet, feet by tall. two
0: feet by a, ha- a foot and a half tall. There you go. Yeah. And
1: so anytime they put those down, they were three wiping feet, out the population. And the recruitment went down. There were no more small ones around. Yeah. And then they built a little back door in the back that's two to three inches by eight inches. There's some magical number. And all the smaller ones were able to get out. Mm. And then the fishermen are now required when they collect it. They pull up the nets. They, uh, they pull up the traps. They have to record anything that's small that they throw back. So, they're essentially doing a population assessment on b- what they catch. And, that and so, way- there's
0: only a specific window of size that they're actually targeting, exactly. which is good.
1: Exactly. And horrendous fines if they're found with lobster that are undersized. So, a back door plus making the commercial fishermen track what they were picking up and throwing back, everything got better. The, the lobster population stabilized dramatically when they put the back door in.
0: Well, it's interesting, too, because the openings. Uh, are regulated as well. So they don't get the very big ones, mm-hmm. which is which they don't necessarily want either because the cost of lobster, mm-hmm. it makes the larger ones cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them spoil in store. Mm-hmm.
1: And they're uh, pretty sure, that based on population studies, that the super large ones, although they're not, Super producers. They used to think that one big male would would fertilize all the females, and it finds out no, that's not true. No, oh, interesting. But the large, big f- males stabilize the population, and so there's enough space for multiple smaller males to to do most of the fertilization.
0: So, stabilize the population. How?
1: It just it, they defend a territory. They create a space. Uh, lobsters oh. are constantly in contact with each other. And you'll find you are a, very social you'll find a crevice where there'll yeah. be two or three mediums and like fifty small ones, and they're all clumped together with each other yeah and so they you take out all the big ones and the they it's like a free for all and it's better when there's territories i'm I'm probably paraphrasing the science badly, yeah, but it's really it important happens. to keep the big ones okay, and anytime you can do it, it's not a simple answer, but it's a better answer
0: I try not to take the large ones <laughs> um it just Feel like they're you leave the successful ones out there mm-hmm. you know, and it's when a possible
1: thing. toss the females back
0: if yeah. you can <laughs> oh absolutely the
1: females are the are wildly productive
0: especially and the big ones
1: there's there's more males than you need out there so yeah. munch down on those males because they're just delicious <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh so you are a fan of lobster <laughs> oh I
1: love lobster, okay. oh my gosh yes yeah i had a I had um I had to describe why I had a picture on my Facebook page of me holding a nice six-pound lobster from one of my beach dive sites, because I also got invited and was able to join the Lobster Advisory Council. No kidding. Yeah, because the Department of Fish and Wildlife looked at the lobster management plan, Mm -hmm. and it had not been updated in decades. And so the mission was to overhaul it and pull together a blue chip panel, a council, it's of, their favorite phrase, those oh, guys. Told, because it's, <laughs> it's professionally facilitated. The goals yeah. are set out. There's opportunity to bring different parties together. There's also opportunities to say some things can't be handled. You can exclude some decisions because yeah. you can't get the whole group to agree. All of those components, and I'm going to go home and look up blue chip, but all Me of too. that is built into how they promise to manage the outcome and the process to, for maximal output. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I was selected as a non-consumptive ocean user. And here I had this picture of me holding a very nice six-pounder. And that, so, I, so I described that my, how I fish, how much I fish, and my reef check engagement. And uh, apparently I'm so far away from the sport fisherman group My goals are so different. Mm. And they said, you're exactly who we're looking for. Because if you don't hunt lobster at all, you're going to demonize anybody who takes them. Right. So you're actually, they said, you're actually what we're looking for. Somebody who understands lobster and the attraction and the powerful meaning of them.
0: But it's not the only perspective you bring to the scenario. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And when I told them, I said, I'll turn them over. And if it's a female, I put them back. Yeah. I said, I was a female one time and she was hard to let go, but I let her go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun and that is where I I had heard a lot of rhetoric that the lobster population was being abused and decreasing and all of the good science is that no, it's a very stable population. But nobody saw ocean warming coming. Nobody saw the incredible kelp disaster with that crazy Bilicinum Horneri Sargassum invasion. Yeah. So they said we need a plan that can give us tools should something Crash the population, and so they had to come up with tools that were acceptable to the sporties. Is is that slang for sport fishermen? (laughs) They are called the sporties. Okay, and the commercials. Okay, and the scientists, and the non-consumptive users, and then there were a couple of people that were non-affiliated. I think they were NGO non-affiliates, but they were part of the twelve. And it's funny because the Last Supper, you only get twelve. This panel can only have twelve people, and there was you know two of us who were non-consumptive, two sporties three or four com- uh, commercials and
0: it's probably something about like once you get past 12 people all you do is argue no matter what yeah, probably yeah true. it's probably yeah.
1: No decision happens in a group bigger than 12.
0: I don't think I'd ever have a Thanksgiving dinner larger than 12. Good
1: good idea. Yeah,
0: it's not going to end well.
1: <laughs> Cuz then you need way too much alcohol and then someone's going to have to sleep over.
0: <laughs> mm, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> that wouldn't be the reason I cut it off. I'd be like, "All right.
1: We got a it, couch.
0: Let's make it happen."
1: It was I I never got to be part of the MPA process, that whole blue chip thing I read in detail about it, but I never got to be there. And so to get to be on the Lobster Advisory Council was a fantastic experience
0: yeah how was how were the conversations how are the experiences as a quote unquote non-consumptive uh was your interactions with the people who had maybe came to the situation with a very different perspective than you like um, i imagine it was probably okay but maybe maybe not
1: it it, it was a It was a bar fight with everybody with their guns still in their holsters. Nobody trusted anybody. We all came in with expectations and we were all prickly over certain things. Like, we, as a non consumptive diver, ocean user, I wanted it to be obvious that the general wealth and health, not health, but the, the general healthiness of a habitat is a high priority. Right. And then the people who needed to consume or extract things didn't want that on the table because there's no one perfect healthy habitat and so if you just drive a boat through something you've affected it so they were very aggressive about not wanting to say there's a perfect untouched eden that we're trying to get to we're humans we're here which we're which is true be.
0: to some extent right like
1: but they were testing me to find out it was i a kelp hugger was i just going to be monotonous? monotonously kelp
0: hugger. oh my god yeah i'd die
1: <laughs> and and, i'm so
0: going to use that reference and
1: i'm a nurse so i'm a really social person but i was getting these big hands-off you know verbal body language from the commercial people uh men all everybody was men except the one of the scientists one of the facilitators and three of us in the science non-extractive but it was mostly guys and, which uh, can have, which was another isn't, part isn't it. a
0: huge issue, but it could, it, it definitely changes the communication style. Yeah. Like if you get a group of guys together, the communicate, communication style can be a little more aggressive. Yeah.
1: And there, Unnecessarily. There, there, yes. And, and exactly. Yeah. And uh, the, the locker room, the locker room interactions, it's just different. So uh, how were the relationships? Originally, everybody was very testy mm-hmm. and we were willing to listen, but we had our arms folded. I don't agree with what you're proposing. And the sport fishermen had issues with commercials. All of them had issues with us non-extractives. They yeah. were, we were just like, flowers, what are you doing here? You're not using the ocean. Wait, wait, <laughs> I'm not extracting from the ocean, but I'm using it. Right. So initially it was odd, but these facilitators gave us two or three meetings just to settle down, just to listen and listen and listen. And people would start to try to, to advocate and they would say, oh, we're, we're getting there. We're not there yet. And then they had some social plannings. They had some lunch parties. We had to do some activities. So there was a little bit of
0: team building to create relations. A little to bit, to of, relati- little bit so of a relationship building before you had, got down to discussion. So you yes. couldn't look across at somebody and just be like, you're a monster.
1: And by the third meeting, we actually liked each other. It yeah. Was- Bizarre. And then toward the end, I was violently opposed to some of the things they advocated, but I liked the person who was saying it. Which matters. And that's what they did for us. Yeah. And so a lot of the things that recreational divers wanted um, did not go through.
0: Recreational? Recreational.
1: Just hunters? uh, Yeah. Or divers? uh,
0: Non-extractors or extractors? Divers.
1: Because the majority of sport fishermen for lobster are... Hoop netters.
0: Hoop netters. Which
1: very. I have issues
0: I have issues with the newer methods of hoop netting, the conical nets. They which look are, like
1: traps. They're oh, yeah.
0: they're very close to traps. We
1: spent two days talking about the trapness. What is trapness? It was like mm. back to my linguistics class where when does mm. a cup become a bowl? What is the cuppiness? When is a bowliness? And when do they merge? So we had to go through trappiness and figure out what was a trap. And um, the commercial hoop netters. Uh, were the most Im- um, forceful in what they wanted. And the numbers of the lobster they catch is huge. Uh, whereas yeah. the scuba numbers of lobster are actually quite small.
0: Yeah, there's a couple people who are very prolific in mm-hmm. their take. Oh, yeah. <clears throat>
1: and, and they showed us those numbers that there yeah. were people who took three and 400 lobsters a year. But yeah. the average lobster, the average person who gets a license, I gets think is... under twenty. Exactly.
0: Under twenty, easy. Easy under but twenty. But so is it? So when you say commercial hoop netters, mm-hmm. is that commercial uh, fishermen yeah. sport,
1: or sport, sport, sport hoop netters? Hoop netters. Yeah, okay. sport hoop netters. I'm like I didn't know
0: there was commercial. No, hoop there is. <laughs> they use commercial trapping. Yeah. Okay. There,
1: there wasn't much representation for scuba diving mm-hmm. and lobster hunting. Okay. And most of the sport catch was represented for hoop netters interested. Although there were some free divers, they were, really? they were represented. Okay. But for scuba, most scuba divers don't take lobster, so we were almost grouped into a kind of a non-extractive thing. But it's okay. I just had this feeling that people on the boat would talk to me cuz I was diving on boats. I think I dived 42 dive boats in the year that I was on the council. Mm-hmm. I was diving non-stop, and I would tell people, "Hey, I'm on the lobster advisory council. Talk to me. Tell me what you think about lobsters." And then that was my job. And the, all the other representatives were supposed to go back to their constituencies and gather information. And a lot of the ideas that the diving community had didn't make any difference to the population of lobsters. What do you mean? Um, like their, their start, solutions or yeah, their suggestions? We always started at midnight. As I was growing up in diving, the season would always open at midnight. That...
0: that- I honestly think that's one of the best changes they made because right. I think it cut down on fatalities exactly. of divers. Yeah, but
1: it had nothing to do with the lobster health. No, that's We're true. there to do a new management plan for lobstering, and that suddenly became a cultural event. And it's super important because humans are important. And uh... all right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, let me let me just go yeah. over this. So, anyway. for those people who might be new to lobster diving or have never done it before, uh, opening, opening opening time. Nights. Opening time used to be opening night, where it would happen at twelve oh one on the first Saturday after October. And so, what you would have, and I was just telling somebody this, what you would have in California is the most dangerous night of diving uh, of the entire year, because you would have people who literally only dive for lobster. They would show up, kind of tired from an entire day, because mm-hmm. it would usually because it was on a Saturday, right? Mm-hmm. And so they do something all Saturday, maybe be in the sun, a little sunburn, exhausted, and getting their stuff ready, going and buy their card at the last minute. They haven't been diving in months. And then they show up. It's dark. They haven't checked conditions. And they go out and drop into the blackness of the ocean and they go and try and dive with one thing in mind, which is catching lobster. Mm-hmm. Not Target being lock. a good. What was that? Target lock. Target lock, (laughs) not paying attention to being a good diver, not focusing on the proper skills to keep yourself safe. And it has all happened to anybody who's ever done lobster diving. You're like, oh, I have this much air left. Uh, You know, I should probably go up, but there's one right there. And you get suckered in and you chase it. And you're like, God, whether you get it or you don't get it, you kind of like swim up and you make it out. And you're like, that's stupid. Why did I do that? That was dangerous. But in that moment, you make that split decision. And for some people, it results in a really unfortunate situation, you know. Um,
1: I think an average of three people, there was a stretch of time where they said, we could account for three deaths each year for opening night somewhere yeah. in the state. I mean, it's only from Santa Barbara South, really.
0: Yeah. And and the crazy thing is, uh, you know, I, I used to teach scuba classes, and you know, they'd be in the fall and somebody would find out about lobster diving and they would be like, oh, I'm going to go out as soon as I'm certified. And I'm like, please don't do that. I'm like, please really don't do that. And I would dissuade them because I'm like, I know it seems fun and I promise you it is fun, but it is the most dangerous thing you can do.
1: You're not diving, you're hunting.
0: As a recreational. Well, and you're doing it very, where you don't have the life protecting part of the situation down yet Mm -hmm. you are a beginner at the i'm just surviving underwater stage Mm -hmm. you know and so it is the most dangerous so i can see why that change is important from midnight to 6 a.m because during the day early morning a little bit more chill, light is out, less chance of panic, like lots of good things.
1: It, it made a huge difference. And there's so little uh, emergency support services at night. It's really mostly yes. for boats. Yes. And so that, uh, just trying to be available to rescue people oh, from midnight to six was really harsh. The uh, I think that the um, the law enforcement was the biggest advocate for that. They were hoping that we were going to propose it, and they, they just were overjoyed to find out Department of Fish and Wildlife that oh, yeah. we were going to do that. Because so it, it was, it was
0: a total... Also, Department of Fish and Wildlife, they had to send out uh, agents. It was mm-hmm. their busiest night, because everybody you know, is yeah. making mistakes, and late at night, how many lobsters did I catch, and they would bust people all and the time. And they were
1: exhausted. Yeah, They were course. completely exhausted. They dreaded that night. Of course, But it was really fun to watch the science unroll. There's so much that we know about the Southern California lobster population that shows that things are very stable, they're resilient. They Mm. are very different from the Mexican population, but they still feel that there's still a lot of seeding from the Mexican larvae settling in Southern California. Really? Yeah, they're still looking at that. And there's a whole bunch of larval studies that are still going on for the ones, how how early can we know if the population's going to crash? So they yeah. need to know as much as possible about from the moment they settle to the moment that they become reproductive. And then by sizings, they should be fully reproductive for two, possibly four years before they're legal to catch. Okay. And that's working. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: How, how much talk was there about creation of habitat? Because I'm, I'm not as closely... Uh, linked with the circles who are involved with the scientists. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have heard positions of major environmental groups on certain things, but there seems to be a very large pushback against things like artificial reefing and uh, the creation, or artificial reefing of at least ships. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been some pushback against artificial reefing of oil platforms Mm -hmm. when they're done. And there's been some pushback on the creation of artificial reefs in California. And I don't know if there's... I don't understand the resistance to creating habitat necessarily. Although I understand creating habitat means destroying other habitats. So that's a whole new thing, but...
1: Yeah, it didn't come up for lobsters. And all your questions are great. And I would love to just run them down. But it didn't come up for the Lobster Advisory Council because the territory for lobsters are so huge. Yeah, uh, and there was nothing, no, nothing on the man-made size scale yeah. that would have made any difference, really. They just needed uh, to protect areas.
0: Difference in terms of population.
1: I don't, I don't know lobster population. It might be a local area. I mean, if you put you down don't think the habitat. Redondo
0: Beach breakwall is a huge lobster habitat? It is. Or the you but, know, but, but it but, also
1: serves another function.
0: And that's so true. The whole
1: idea of doing something that large, right? That, Labor intensive and that disruptive to a sand habitat just to have more lobsters. I mean, there was thank God, thank God, if nobody was watching. Way back in the 40s and 50s, because oh, yeah. they put out all those rock piles in Santa Monica. You've dived them, right?
0: I don't think I've been to the ones. I've been to the ones around Star King Harbor. Have you,
1: have you dived Star of the, Scotland? I know about of Scotland?
0: You know, it is on my list. Oh, I you have haven't never. Seen it. Okay. I have not.
1: Up near the, the Star of Lobster. Uh, Star of Lobster. Star, Star of Scotland. Scotland um, which is a wreck
0: uh, kind of northwest of Marina Del Rey, correct? Is. Okay, it is. So and that's its location. It's
1: in 75. 75- 70 feet of water I think it's wonderful for lobster it's wonderful for giant sea bass it's a really cool shipwreck yeah Uh, but when you dive it then you turn around and you head out to the rock piles okay and they gridded it the fishermen way back in the 40s and 50s when like nobody was watching they gridded it out so you could always find them and they made these wonderful rock piles and they were about my height so five to six feet tall and they were maybe 10 to 15 feet around They varied because they were just dropping rocks from the surface. Right. But, oh, my God, the life. So they wanted to fish the northern Santa Monica Bay, which is all sand. Right. And they made this, I don't know, hundreds, but certainly dozens and dozens of rock piles. And it's fantastic. And today, you'd have to, I don't even know what it would take to do that. I
0: mean, but that's kind of my point. Yeah. Why couldn't we do that? Well, I don't want to go willy-nilly, right? You can take anything too far. But Mm -hmm. in the same way that you say, like, okay, you need an MPA, and you want an MPA that connects these territories, wouldn't it be sensible to create uh, certain reef habitats that will also connect reefs Mm -hmm. across the bay? I like that idea. Yeah. Because, one, it creates more access and availability. Uh, Like, habitat destruction is the number one thing that we see harming uh wildlife and game on land mm-hmm. uh and there are certain groups that are doing really amazing things to buy back habitat and mm-hmm. convert it back to its natural thing
1: right ducks unlimited amazing. the ducks unlimited yeah. is amazing Nature conservancy thing, which amazing. has
0: which has a dual purpose mm-hmm. they 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 preserve a lot of land so that they can manage it through hunting, which Brilliant. is good, which mm-hmm. is good because it actually is a self self funding mm-hmm. Group,
1: which Trout, is, Trout Unlimited grew from yeah. that exact model. They're fabulous.
0: It's a really good model that people don't pay attention to. And by creating these kind of jumping off points for the species to survive, uh, I think it's good. And I don't know why there's no pro... I mean, maybe because we're not as desperate. Yeah. There's not as much threat. But I, I, I don't understand why there's not a proactive attempt to do that. Because I think it's twofold. Because if you have these environmental things, uh the environmental space for species to flourish, I think it's gonna create more resiliency, which I think Mm -hmm. environmentalists ultimately want. And I think it also creates more opportunity for people to interact, which is where my personal vested interest is. And I think I think it's also I mean, you've got twelve million people in this in this small area, which is the Santa Monica Bay, right? Mm
1: -hmm. This is an enormous amount Thank God for those artificial reefs that are out there. They're really fun. Yeah. They're
0: super fun. They're, we don't even have really good wrecks to dive, but the mm-hmm. wrecks that we do have out there are just amazing experiences to go on. They really on. are. Good. I mean, I wish...
1: I wish we had more Ships to Reefs. I think Ships to Reefs is an amazing program. I wish we had more.
0: I, I, str- I, I so wholeheartedly support their goal. I struggle with their method because it is so slow... Yeah. And ineffective. Okay. I want, you know, and, and I'm sure everybody has this with anything, right? It's, I There is no reason there shouldn't be three Yukons in the Santa Monica Bay. There's no reason. One, the Yukon brings in a million dollars a year to local yes, communities.
1: They va- validated every penny of that.
0: If you had three of those in the Santa Monica Bay, mm-hmm. all the hotels along Marina del Rey, uh, Redondo Beach, Hermosa, uh, Santa Monica would get massive influx of divers coming from other places. Uh, You would have increased habitat for critters. Uh, You would have a growth of local economy. There is, I mean, maybe the sandworms would suffer. Like, that is the only person, the only group that I could see, uh, you know, harmed by that. But there's just no movement. There's no movement. And it drives me nuts. Well, and I understand you don't want to do stuff willy-nilly, but there is... I don't, under, I don't understand why people can't get behind this. Yeah,
1: And they're all sitting there. The ghost fleet is sitting in Sausalito up there. And it's, yeah. it's basically... They're you,
0: rotting you can... away. And we're going to end up having to pay to have them removed. Instead, let's get volunteers. Got them. I mean, now, I, honestly, I think now is, now is the time when it should be happening. Because you have COVID, a whole bunch of people out of work. You can have a government stimulus program, drop a bunch of wrecks. Put people back to work. How amazing would that
1: be? There's been a lot of talk of that. Of what are, Tell what
0: are me who from? those people who are talking, I want to go talk to them. <laughs> no, it's just
1: in general. Just yeah. the humanity of the United States that's just going to be frustrated for a very long time. Maybe it's time for another WPA of some kind. Where the government actually gets things done that they couldn't get done before by just paying for it.
0: Well, mm-hmm. And take that opportunity to improve the quality of existence of our country. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I'm a big, like, I look back at some of the leaders of the 19th century, um, who were forward enough thinking to make things like national parks
2: mm-hmm. and
0: protect these environments, so that, so that they knew that by doing that, their grandchildren would be able to experience this world, and they saw value in that. And I'm, I'm kind of of the same mind in that as like. If my grandkids don't get to go snorkeling in Palos Verdes and see bat rays and leopard sharks and, uh, you know, the beautiful sunlight shining through kelp and there's nothing but sarcasm and dead mm-hmm. reef out there, I will feel like we have failed them. We failed, yeah. You know, and, you know, or, or catch a fish out there, you know, to go out to, you know, Rocky Point and pull up, a you know, a kelp bass. Mm-hmm. And fillet it on the boat, and see the birds come around, and like those are all really amazing experiences. That if people haven't done it, you know, you got to get out
1: there. Yeah, you're missing a great part of life. And and we need to be responsible stewards of it too. And unbelievable that the state of California was able to get it on the ballot, get it voted for, and it actually is there. Yeah. All of the protected California has more protected waters than any other state of the union.
0: Isn't that insane? There's
1: 13 coastal states that do not have even 1% of their waters MPA'd. That is so None. insane. And, and it's not that you just MPA willy-nilly, but of certainly course. if they looked carefully at the health of the habitat, there would be very good reasons to set up MPAs. But only California had the, the wisdom to look at it so far and do it. People, um, So many friends up in Seattle who kept asking me for years, how do we get reef check up here? It's like, well, you, you, need get a, an MPA. you need a legislative act to support it. Because well. this was a voted on the ballot, and it passed. And it's law. And without that law, there's no money. There's no funding. Uh, the license plates, every year we would talk about how money came to Reef Check to support what we do. Because as divers... I'm a volunteer. They don't pay me, of course. Uh, if we're doing a shore dive, if there's parking, I pay my own parking. I provide all my own gear. I mean, I'm really volunteering which, me which and my resources. Which, if paying for
0: parking in Redondo is outrageous. Yeah,
1: it's, it's not bad. <laughs> it's okay. Outrageous,
0: Redondo Beach. <laughs> if you can hear me. <laughs> outrageous. Quarters? Still quarters. I
1: know. I anyway. Know. Thank God at least they didn't raise the, what's the annual? Of 110? Is it 110 now? Yeah. They were talking I about making when it was 400. 60. I remember it was 62 and somebody last couple of years ago wanted to move it to 400 just to make more money and every, and they were able to stomp that down. So
0: well, it's, it's such a bizarre, I don't know, we can get into city politics and how they choose to fundraise and the, the way they look at, uh, Things like traffic fines as a revenue source mm-hmm. as opposed to like uh, creating moral behavior goods. And mm-hmm. it, it gets real bizarre, man.
1: That's why we go diving. So for one hour, you can't talk to anybody. You can't hear anybody. Just be there. And you just look at the fish, and you look at wild animals that come running up to you. I guess finning up to you. They come finning up to you just to look at you. And it, it's such a miraculous space, and it all comes back to that. Why why do we want to defend it and protect it? For a lot of cultural reasons. But as divers, we've got that inside sacred cathedral feeling. Even if I catch lobster, even if you fish. Of course. uh, Even if you grab handfuls of target shrimp. People eat those things? (laughs) They Uh, look so creepy to me. Don't
0: let the secret out of the bag that those guys are delicious. Really? You've never had them? No. Seriously? You cook them up like scampi? Really? Oh, just a nice linguine? It's really good. My friend Alex loves them.
1: And there's enough of them there.
0: Well, there's a certain time of year at a dive site that we both know about. Yes. We're not, able will remain nameless, uh, where they all come in.
1: Constantly. And they, I just, in my head, I hear chittering. I hear, just hear horrible little lo- cockroach chittering in my imaginary oh. brain because they're pretty freaky.
0: Really? That's just tiny lobsters, <laughs> man. Those are delicious. They're, they're really good. But I don't to, like to take them, though.
1: Yeah, but just to be underwater and look at life because it's looking at you, mm-hmm. um, I know I know a lot of people who hunt, and they try to stay from a distance. Even bow hunters, they don't really want to think too much the, about the animal. They honor it. They eat it with relish. They appreciate its gifts. But we get to go in the ocean and just have stuff look at us, and we look back, and we have octopus that'll come up to my dry suit and rip open the pockets, and I can hear the Velcro separating underwater, and he's got two arms in my pocket, seeing if there's anything I can eat in there. and.
0: That's a, that's a octopus that has been around a guy who's harvesting uh, crabs, crabs this or is Seattle. Oh, Seattle. Yeah. Okay, so
1: crabs. Yeah, the giant Pacific octopus that are twenty oh. twenty foot from tip to tip. Those guys are a
0: little pro- like those guys are can be uh, cause havoc underwater. Terrifying. I've seen yeah, <laughs> I've awesome. seen them. At, there's a couple really great videos of guys who are trying to photograph them, and the octopus oh, yeah. decides, oh, I'm just going to take your mask off.
1: Oh yeah, they one grabbed mine pulled it off my face, and let it go. (laughs) It was like Daffy Duck. Like a cartoon. Yeah, exactly. I got beaked. uh, And the mask came back on sideways, partially filled with water. And I'm just sitting there going, did that just happen? This is amazing. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He was trying to pull my regulator out. He was all over my head. He was opening all my pockets. And he was just a rambunctious junior. He was maybe 10 feet across. He wasn't very big.
0: The big ones uh, take out, like, uh, swell sharks and things like that. They go after... They and are smart, man. they
1: kidnapped cameras. People have had to go back the next day to get their camera. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> I really want to see one of those guys in the wild, but go. I don't want to get
1: oh, you'd camera love jacked. You'd love them. You'd, actually, you would totally love them. Yeah. It's rare that they do that, and it's yeah. mostly the people who phot- photograph them so much that they get closer and closer, and they just catch them on a bad day.
0: We all have those. But,
1: uh, oh, yeah, don't miss Seattle. If you get a chance to get a dry suit and go dive Seattle, Oh incredible.
0: Well we'll have to talk later incredible. about yeah. uh any any recommendations of places that you would recommend up there. Uh I did a trip up there last summer. Yeah, it must have been last summer. And we did from Portland we road tripped around the Olympic Peninsula into Seattle mm-hmm. and then up to Whistler.
2: Ooh. And beautiful. we did
0: some whale watching. Um and we went out of Seattle and it wasn't as good. And then I went out of Ana Cortez and the San Juan Islands, and we were just with a pack of orcas the entire time. Oh, around. my God. <laughs> and it's really sad that they don't have uh, management programs up there because one of the things that they're going through, I'm sure you know of, is the fact that their local salmon and I think it's herring. Is it herring populations have just crashed? Crashed. And so the if you go up there and see orcas now, it's almost all... Um, transient orcas and all the residents are in like dire all the resident pods are just suffering so heartily mm-hmm. because there's just nothing for them to eat. Yeah. Because all those fishing stores are gone. And it's yeah. I think they were yeah. actually last time I checked And it temperature was, changes. Just yes. the
1: temperature the the water temperature change is like a tsunami. It's a slow grinding tsunami that's changing everything.
0: Well it's like a it's a, it's like desert it's the ocean version of desertification, yeah, right? It is. You know, it
1: is, and and life will find a way. It'll just be different life. And yeah. we're humans, so we like to get to know things, and we like to hold things. And it's like I love this kelp forest. I always want this kelp forest to be yeah. here, but if the water's above 70, a significant part of the time, then it's subject to fallibility. Something like the horn or eye can come in that sargassum and just completely overgrow it, uh, and then it come come back. But it's you hate to see what you love. Change, But then you look at San Clemente Island, and you look at all of the platforms on the island itself, those used to be beaches. Yeah. So the ocean we are treasured with right now didn't even exist a yeah. hundred million years ago. So, well, I'm but sure, I like kelp forests and I don't want them to go away.
0: <laughs> I, you know, there is people, there's, there's, you know, the great divide between warm water divers and cold water divers, right? But I think, you know, people who are afraid of cold water diving miss out on some of the most beautiful colors that you can see. Now, it's not coral, right. but when you are underwater and you are in a kelp room, you know, where the kelp, you're surrounded by kelp, but you're in an open space, and that kelp grows up and is covering your particular portion of the ocean like a canopy, and you can just see the transition of color from kind of the caramely, dark uh, depths of the kelp all the way up to this sunlit kind of skylight of golden kelp and then there's blue clear water around and just that combination of color just warms your heart in some way and then a
1: white soup fin shark goes sliding by quietly yeah and a couple of lobsters go skittering across a rock oh it's your it's paradise
0: you just feel like you are in a amazingly special moment Mm -hmm. and i I know blue water is nice the tropics are nice i Mm -hmm. visit them as often as i can but that is a different feeling, and it is a it, beautiful yeah.
1: feeling. I look at it like a rose garden. That when I go warm water diving, it's like being in a rose garden. There's incredible variety. There's, uh, it's um, a massive animal, but it has so little food in the water that everybody has to be an expert at living on almost nothing, like breatharians almost. But you come to temperate waters from Mexico to Canada, up into Alaska. It's a rainforest. Yeah. There's layer on layer on layer. Everybody's eating everybody else. Everybody's stalking. Everybody's trying to blend in. You know, fish of the day—it's you. <laughs> You're just there's vibrant life. How many animals have you seen eat other animals underwater? A lot. Over and over and over. It's a action paintball rainforest. Yeah. And I love I love the three dimensionality because the fish really do feel like birds up in the trees. Yeah. And then I just love the vibrant, dense amount of life. So much oxygen, so much, you know, that seven-foot visibility days. It's all food. It's like french fries in the water.
0: It and is. the life
1: is happy, even though you can't see through it. Yeah, well,
0: <laughs> I go back and forth. I lo- Some days I love the low visibility just because you sneak up on stuff you otherwise wouldn't see. Good point. As spear fishermen love it for sea- white sea bass, because those guys are so tricky to spot.
1: Good point. But...
0: You know, it also, sometimes you can have a big reef where you you like those big expansive views. If the visibility is down, all of a sudden, your focus changes. Is now you're looking at the rocks right in front of you. And you see smaller stuff that you normally wouldn't see. Nudibranchs. Yeah, nudibranchs show up. <laughs> sometimes you see skeleton shrimp that you would never notice otherwise. Sometimes you start looking in crevices. You find an octopus that's hiding, holding up shells to keep a barrier. Like, you just see different things. And... The versatility of the environment here is so dynamic. It's not as superficially uh, it's not as superficially uh, full, as I would say some coral reefs are. Mm-hmm. Like if you've been to Bonaire, there's something to look at everywhere. Everywhere, but it's weird because it's the same thing. It's almost like uh, if you if you look, to me at least. If you look at like when you people mow out concrete and they flatten it out, and then they take that stamp and they just stamp it over again, that's how I feel coral reefs are. Sometimes it's like, oh, that fish is with that fish, which is that fish, and that's with that thing, and then over here, that fish is with that fish, which is that fish and that thing. Like, and it's over and over again. It feels stamped out. Yeah. And it took it took me a couple days to get past that, where I was just looking at the same things, and then filtering all that out in in tropical waters but in california you can every place you go is different and you know our our mutual friend phil gardner we were i would talk to him in an earlier podcast and he was saying you get such versatility along the coast here even in palos verdes it's like you can see things you know 100 yards apart that you won't see anywhere else oh
1: yeah malibu when i was diving malibu for a couple of years there in a wetsuit there were certain spots that i saw things that i saw nowhere else and and we used to laugh with new buddies it's like anybody can have a good day when it's 20 foot is yeah. you know when you're a real diver when you have a good day and it's 5 yeah <laughs> that's when you are a real california diver because you're so, you just you adjust what you look at based mm-hmm. on what you can see and just you got to have range you're going to have a range from little tiny stuff living in holes with a bright light to, wow, look at the incredible group of five sunfish swinging by. Oh, man. It's amazing.
0: Have you made it out to the oil rigs? Yes. Ah, that's another that's another environment that I'm, I hope never goes away. I,
1: I agree. The science supports it. Um, this, there was this huge science drive. Milton Love was part of it at UC Santa Barbara. Milton Love's a
0: great great guy.
1: And he did really great work on that. And it's not so much for our oil rigs. It's really the Gulf of Mexico, where there's thousands and thousands of oil rigs. And so the finances from the um, energy industry definitely is trying to find a way to keep those rigs in place. So that's the purpose of all the research. Uh, But it doesn't hurt us here in our beautiful blue Serengeti waterways Mm -hmm. to look at the few oil rigs we have. There's not many of them. But, man, they're spectacular.
0: Uh, Well, The fact that you can have so many brittle stars on the, so you have these pillars that are supporting the soil rig, and there's not an inch exposed.
1: It's like a swing set. Everything is covered with
0: brittle stars or scallops or, you know, uh, what is the other thing you see on there?
1: Oh, barnacles and sponges, and it's edge by edge. It's life on top of life, and it's about two feet deep. From and, the metal to the very surface you can touch is about two feet worth of life.
0: And what's amazing is every six months they scrape the top. Uh, what is top. it? Sixty feet?
1: Uh, more like thirty. Is yeah. it thirty?
0: Yeah.
1: And Down it grows back. 30.
0: Yeah. It grows back. Yeah. That's how rich of an environment that's that environment has created such a uh, such an opportunity for mm-hmm. critters to grow that if within six months you can have viable. Oh
1: yeah, that's edible. Why. Scouts. The open ocean is filled with life. That's why ships have to use some type of coating, otherwise an anti-fouling coating, because ships do the same thing that reefs do, which is gives something to land on. There's so much out there waiting to land, and, man, the reefs are amazing. And so they really did show that it was an incredible recruitment device, that uh, more fish grew more babies, and there was more successful everything. It's just a great habitat, and it should be saved.
0: I thought there was a law talking about saving those rigs Mm -hmm. like uh capping off the well Mm -hmm. pulling all that stuff out taking the rig off and And cutting it off at 40 feet
1: they'd like to they need to cut it to about 70 just there's so much liability when you leave anything in the ocean and somebody runs into it so they're 70 that's deep yeah and that's the issue that's the issue is how how shallow can you leave it and the be- the biggest benefit for life and it kind of an MPA process is the bottom. The bottom, from the bottom up, is where all of the rockfish. And rockfish are incredibly valuable, incredibly important in the habitats, yeah. and a very important game fish. Right. And so there's so much money at play. The yeah. oil companies don't want to have to dismantle it. It's ridiculously expensive. Yeah. And then the game fishermen I was like, yeah. That would be really cool to have the population supported with these oil rigs. They're they doing also, it right now. We'd yeah. like it to continue. But then there's the navig- hazards navigation. And yeah, who's going to maintain it? And if it starts to break down and breaks loose, what's going to happen? I don't know where they're going to go with it. I haven't followed it for the last five years. But I know the science totally supports keeping it.
0: How great would that be? It would be awesome. I would love it if they could just not make it 70 feet.
1: Yeah, exactly. If they can make it 50 feet. Because <laughs> we love it because it's fun. It's just to be able to, rock, to oh. rock it around and see all this life. I, I used to dive the oil rigs every other month. Oh. I was like, oh, oh, it's been 60 days. I need to go dive the rig. Oh,
0: so amazing.
1: It is.
0: But, yeah, there's just so many great environments. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then sandy floors. Uh, things like Veterans Park that we dive. That's, that's a habitat that you can only visit, as far as I know, in four places, really, in Southern California. You've got Point Doom, La Jolla Shores, uh, Vets Park. Um, and then boat, if you have I a think, boat. I think
0: those sandy floors are unique because they all uh, butt up against a submarine a canyon. canyon. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly,
1: I, yeah. If you go, which
0: changes the, the distinct com- flavor of sandy floors in California.
1: Completely. If you yeah. go diving at the Santa Monica Pier, I hope you like a lot of sand. And it is it's it's cool, there's fun stuff, and the rocks do give some life to it, but sand is sand, yeah uh, that all of the submarine reefs are
0: amazing well they're they're unique in the sense that they provide some sort of highway that we don't totally understand <laughs> for interesting and unique things to show up squid squid for one <laughs> squid uh. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like I've talked about the squid run every time I've done a <laughs> podcast just because I love it. It's
1: overwhelming. It is. It's it's, it's
0: one of the most amazing. It's diaspora. a
1: rite of spring experience. I can just hear the music in my head when I'm down there.
0: But uh, squid are amazing, and but also even uh, Martin Love. Uh, I think it was Martin Love or one of his proteges was working on the seabass project. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a lot of the sightings of juvenile black sea bass or juvenile giant sea bass um, are in uh, beaches and waterways that are at the openings yep. of those uh, submarine canyons.
1: For for diving, for observation of the juvenile giant sea bass, it's Veterans Park and La Jolla Shores. Yeah. Those are the two number one spots.
0: Which I haven't seen one there in a long time now. But, yeah, it
1: changes every year. Yeah. And then they're pretty small and we don't get to dive much. Right? Yeah. An hour at a time, that's all we get. Yeah. But yeah. What, what are the other um, jaw-dropping things you've seen at Veterans Park?
0: Well, I, I, one of the most startling things was absolutely uh, the prickly shark that I happened to come by.
1: A prickly shark?
0: Exactly. I didn't know what it was at when Vets. I saw it at Vets Park. They're usually deep water sharks. Uh, most sightings are by ROVs yeah. or uh, um, commercial divers. They're usually from a hundred meters down, yeah, they're super deep, oh and um, I spotted this guy, I was with my cousin, who was a brand new diver. I spotted this guy, and i I took some video of it, and it was it just startled the heck out of me because it it was not small. It was a solid seven, eight feet, and where I've been around leopard sharks, which can be about that big, sure. but leopards are tiny, yeah. like they're yeah. thin and long and like this. This guy was wide, girthy. just
1: thick Big, in girthy. the back, like like great whites. Kind of had they a lemon sharks and had a pricklies. booty on it though. Yeah, like it had
0: a booty. Its yeah. back was way thicker than its front. The head looked like it could have been a small shark. The tail was just like probably you know close to three feet wide. It felt like it and was just you,
1: very thick. How long did you get to see him?
0: Well, oh, I swam with him for maybe a minute. Wow. So I was not looking for him. I was swimming, and I, I was just kind of doing my thing, and I turned to my left with my light, and he was right there, two feet away.
1: Whoa, that's yeah, big. Yeah, it In was. In your personal space. And it,
0: I was just like, I don't know what you are. And then I kind of sized him up, and he wasn't, wasn't looking aggressive. He yeah. was just kind of curious. I swam over to my cousin who was with me, grabbed the GoPro, started filming, and we followed him down to about 100 feet. We were at about 80 because I was like, I'm not just going to not swim with the shark. And we stayed with him for about 30 seconds to a minute. That's I mean, maybe it awesome. felt oh. like that. But maybe it was less. But it was really cool. We got a good look at him.
1: Oh, I got to find your video. That sounds... I'll send it killer. to you
0: after this. That was one of the coolest ones. I mean, I've done several shark dives here in California um, with Makos. Makos are super Ooh, cool. Oh, I've never done that. Yeah. I haven't seen... My friend saw a thresher at Vets. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. But I... You know, Vets is a, is a neat spot in the sense that, like, you just never know what you're going to find.
1: No. Um, we were doing a night dive at 100 feet. We were working on decompression and orientation and uh, controlled stops in open water. Yeah. Like, 100 feet of Vets, that's where you go to work on that stuff. So and the was... sand
0: turns all mucky and silty too so you got to be careful <laughs>
1: yeah that's part of it you're not allowed to touch the bottom because it's just hiroshima's around you uh-huh. so we're just getting level and we're, we'd gone up and come back down and we're getting ready to go again and this weird fish came out of the darkness right at me and bumped into my chest and then bounced around and stayed under our lights he was about two feet long he had this fine tracery he's a ratfish oh yeah he had fine tracery of gold Ooh. over him and the the jaws look like some weird pig with a funny nose, and then they've got these paddles that don't look like scales. It they're, like, they're called one of their. Fish. They're very weird. Chim- Chimera is one Chimeras, of their yeah. names because they look like five animals put together. And I'd never heard of one, never seen one. Pulled out my wet notes. I'm drawing. still have the pictures. I'm drawing pictures because this guy won't go away. You know, we're looking, we're burning through gas. But a ratfish at 100 feet in Southern California? I don't so know weird. anyone who's seen a ratfish in SoCal. And then I went to Seattle, because all my friends were laughing, going, oh, let's see if we can find you some ratfish. And they took me on the ratfish dive. Right, the exactly. Oil, the oil, the oil uh, docks. And we had literally, like squid, we had 2,000 ratfish around us. No kidding. Just massive. That's
0: an amazing dive. Yeah.
1: So that was, that was a crazy thing, to see a ratfish at midnight. I've so, seen a torpedo ray yeah. that was a good three and a half feet across, maybe four
0: and for people who don't know what a torpedo ray is, that is a unique California species that has the ability to electrify its prey and or anything that it thinks is a predator. Mm-hmm. Now it f- are
1: like wings and it can deliver the energy of a car battery. Ooh. And it's stylish. And it has
0: like a tail like a sh- think of like a gray flying saucer <laughs> with a shark tail. Yeah. Like a shark like if you cut a shark in uh, like a little gray shark in half and then stuck that tail onto a flying saucer, that's what a, you, you, you have when you have one of those. I have a funny story about those guys. So I had no idea what a Torpedo <laughs> Ray was.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I was
0: going diving on the Red Cars. Or no, I'm sorry, the LCM landing craft that Which was in... Yeah, uh, it's Torrance PV kind of area. Mm-hmm. And to the circle around the landing car or craft. It's not a very big wreck. And I see this thing in the sand and I think, oh, it's a, it's a bat ray. I'm going to go, you know, take my lobster bag and just kind of flick down to the thing and I'm going to watch them fly away. And it'll be really cool because they're really graceful when they do that. Well, I go over to this gray lump of what looks like a thing and I, it's covered with sand so it's not totally clear. And when they lay down, that shark tail kind of flips sideways and goes down, which is super unique and weird and I couldn't see it. I poke it and it doesn't do anything. I'm like, oh, bat rays are like super sensitive, like even get close to them and they're like, gone. So I kind of take my lobster bag, which is one of those spring handled ones that has nice metal conductor going through the top of it. And I kind of slip it under and I'm like, hey, buddy, wake up. And the thing did the weirdest thing underwater because underwater, you're pretty noisy. You're a giant black blob. You know you look menacing to almost any fish. Everybody,
1: yeah, Yeah. except fish, Garibaldi.
0: Except Garibaldi, mm-hmm. but they're they're jerks.
2: <laughs> uh,
0: uh, and this thing did something that I've never had happened to that point. I had never had happen to me. Is it wasn't afraid of me, so it just gently kind of did a a ninety degree angle, kind of up. It almost bent in half and kind of leveled off about two or three feet off the off the sandy floor Mm -hmm. and just hovered there for a second and i was like huh (laughs) it's not scared that leads me to believe it knows something i don't know and it did and i was luckily enough to not push my luck with that critter and it just slowly swam away at that depth and i was just like that's so weird what was that about I'm like, what just happened? It was it was like an encounter with a UFO. Uh-huh. And I get back to the boat with my buddy Scott, and I'm like, Scott, this weird thing happened. And I explain to him what happened. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a torpedo ray. I'm like, what's a torpedo ray? I'm like, oh, they can, like, <laughs> shock divers unconscious, and they drowned if you mess with them. And I'm like, oh, so I shouldn't have been poking it with my lo- metal lobster to bag? Okay, cool. <laughs> I was like, ah. That would have been so dumb to die that way.
1: The things people don't tell you. They, I mean, there's not that many things that are scary in SoCal waters. No. There really aren't. I've no. heard more. my worst injuries were um, sea urchins.
0: Yes. That's the number <laughs> one damager of divers.
1: But other than that, nothing has ever bitten me or hurt me or damaged me in any way. So people introducing new divers don't really have a list of be watch, you know, watch out for this. Um, so very few people talk about torpedo rays.
0: Well, they, they're not a near shore animal.
1: And then yeah. the first encounter, you have no idea what it is. You're underwater and nobody can help you. <laughs> so there I was at um, San Clemente Island Ooh. at the arch, one oh. of those beautiful arches. You can just see right through it. Blue water on both sides. Go, drag, go down this canyon and we're floating in the middle. Amazing. And along comes a ray. And I'm thinking, oh, that's beautiful. We have about 30 foot fizz, maybe 40. Beautiful rays. Terrible day out
0: at San Antonio.
1: It could be 60 or 80, but it was nice. It was smoky blue. It was nice. And this ray, I'm floating in a wetsuit, vertical, because I'm looking up around me, and people are all over just kind of mesmerized by the beauty. And this ray comes right toward me. And they so have no fear. I've never and seen a ray vision. come toward me before. Yeah. And I and I, I was totally calm because I didn't know anything. So I was vertical, and I just put my hands close to my side, and the thing came toward me, toward me, toward me, and I finally had to arch. I finally had to kick backwards and do like a Toreador thing and move my torso away. This poor animal, poor animal was going to hit me. And he went by me, and he drifted away and just kind of took off. And somebody watched me do that, and back on the boat they went, okay. I figured you had tough gonads, but I've never seen anybody do that with a torpedo, (laughs) ray. And I had the same reaction. A what? Yeah, what is that? What is that? (laughs) Unbelievable. I wouldn't do the same thing today. And it was so funny when you're ignorant, you're just blissfully ignorant.
0: (laughs) I've had friends who've been out at uh, Farnsworth. Very well-known spot. So
1: many torpedoes out there.
0: Yeah. You're almost guaranteed to see a torpedo ray out there where he's been chased. Oh. where they followed him for, like, 10 or 15 minutes, and he was like, Jesus, man. Yeah, leave me alone. Yeah, what up? <laughs> so, yeah, they're a really interesting critter and prehistoric looking. Totally. Like, they just have two tiny little black eyes. Yep. And tiny. And
1: beautiful, that mottled bluish color on the back. It's like no other ray. Yeah. And yep. they're fat, like a giant What uh, Like a pancake. Yeah. What's that, that Dutch pancake? I don't know what a Dutch they're pancake is. are super thick. Yeah. They're so...
0: Otherworldly, yeah.
1: Ungainly, awkward-looking
0: things. But they move gracefully in the water. Yeah. They glide. Everywhere they're going, they're gliding around. Oh, yeah. It's super cool. Yeah, Yeah, those are super weird. The one thing that I haven't seen, and I'd like to, but I'm terrified, is I'd like to see a Humboldt underwater.
1: That would be fun. I don't
0: know if I would... I know people have seen him in, uh, speaking of submarine canyons, people have seen them in La Jolla. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know how safe it is to be in the water with those guys. I've heard mixed things.
1: Yeah, they're Look. they're they're cephalopods, and having had experience with large octopus, when they're in a bad mood, they're in a really bad mood, and they have a lot of power. It's like being an angry two year old, that with muscles, and mm. that would be my only sensation. Is I think I would cover. I think I would just get down and watch. That's my my plan if I ever get lucky enough to see a great white shark. I'm just going to get to surface, and I'm going to just stay put on the bottom and just watch. Once-in-a-lifetime experience, I hope, but I've never seen one. But I just, I wouldn't be able to be comfortable up in the water hanging around with them.
0: You know, I, I've been around sharks enough. I've been around sand tigers. I've been around oh. makos and Ooh. blues. <laughs>
2: okay.
0: I've been around bulls. Uh, I've never been around whites. But the general sense... That I get from almost every shark that I've been around is they're almost like running on a program. Okay. Like they just kind of they kind of have a program, and if you don't trigger the "I'm prey" program, Mm -hmm. you're okay.
1: It's like a heads-up display, and they're and you're not it, so.
0: Yeah, they're just kind of tracking, and they're just looking to. They they're like operating on the level of heuristics mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. just whatever whatever i'm supposed to do in this moment i'm just going to click into that program and go yeah so
1: don't look like a sea lion if don't, you look don't look like, look like a like sea, lion, sea lion you're good
0: exactly they might come over and check you out but they probably aren't going to fight too much yeah. and all of the people i know who have had encounters with them the whites that is um have kind of told me the same thing they don't really want to mess with you if they don't know what you are so i think that would be okay
1: I've also heard that if you see them, you're not prey. Exactly. So that's my rule. Like anything that, anything scary looking that I see, obviously I'm not prey.
0: Because no. Because
1: they don't have time to waste. They wouldn't let me see them. They just eat me. So I'm good.
0: <laughs> that, that, that's a very true thing. If you've seen a great white, they've already decided that they're not going to eat exactly. you. Exactly.
1: What's the military corollary? Uh, uh, the sniper bullet you hear isn't for you. <laughs> right. If you've heard
0: the if you've heard the shot, it yep. wasn't for you. Yeah, it's not for you. Oh
1: man! <laughs> it's like just enjoy it because it's not for you.
0: <laughs> oh, you, you've already been spared. Yep. They're super cool animals. I I want to go down to Guadalupe and mm. see them in their majesty. Yeah. Uh, I just know that it's gotten so popular now that they certain boats. It's hard to choose a good operator because mm-hmm. certain boats are doing. Some questionable things hmm. down there that are con- on, the,
1: on the horizon all the time. As the horizon's a dive supposed boat, to be good. And I've heard that's an excellent dive uh, charter. Yeah. In fact, they're pretty much stopping all their dive charters and they're just going straight to sharks all the time.
0: Really? Yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good thing if it it's is. popular. I think the We'd more people who it. have positive interactions with wildlife that has been vilified yeah. makes people more aware and capable of. Um, Seen their value.
1: Exactly. You only you only you only protect what you love. Um, even the guy who wrote Jaws ended up being an incredible shark advocate, make, trying to make up for it for the rest of his life because yeah. he realizes that you really only protect what you care about.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah.
1: The thank God sarcastic printheads heads don't get bigger than they are because they'd be a really hard animal to love. If the sarcastic <laughs> went to like four feet. Oh my God! We just all want to kill him with barbecue steaks. Anything oh, I could find. Oh, they <laughs> <laughs>
0: I still haven't been able to drag a mirror down to try and convince one to open up its jaw. oh
1: no, seriously.
0: Oh, I want to do it. I <laughs> bought I bought a clip-on mirror for my
1: thing to try and do it. My dry suit pocket. I have a fold-out mirror from Walmart. Those little, you know, brush on one side, mirror the other. We need to go other. diving. Hello, we need
0: we to need go diving, Claudette. <laughs> this is this has got to be a thing. Let's get you back in exactly. the
1: water. Naropalm did his high school science project on how to how to, get, um, how to elicit an aggressive response from a male sarcastic French head, and he took down the yellow. The inside of their mouth is yellow. They open up. They look like the dinosaurs on Jurassic Park. Yes, actually. They were modeled on them. Yeah. So uh, he figured maybe the yellow. So he put the yellow race car, timed it for two minutes, no response. Then he had a rubber octopus that had eyes. Put that down. No response. And then a mirror.
0: And the mirror did the trick.
1: Full-on umbrella opening back against the mirror five times.
0: (laughs) So uh, for people who don't know what a sarcastic fringe had, it's a tiny little reef fish.
1: Like eight, like eight inches maybe?
0: At is a large one.
1: The large. That's a big male.
0: That's a big male. <laughs> yeah. But their mouth can open almost as wide as long as mm-hmm. their body is. Like they just, it, it like... Uh,
1: and they're, telescopes?
0: They're, telescopes, it, not the umbrellas open. Umbrellas almost. open. Yeah.
1: And then the fish itself is brown, gray, mud color. It mostly blends in. It's got two big eyes that have kind of opal specks in them. When it opens its jaws, it is brilliant yellow, like yellow rainbow yellow.
0: And, and like then, oranges and reds are in there too. And sometimes. they lunge.
1: And then there's nasty little teeth on the yeah. top and on the bottom. And fishermen who've held them, they when they bite you, they get to the bone. The teeth go really? right through your tissue, your muscle, and they get right to the bone.
0: Thank God they're not bigger. Thank God they're not the size <laughs> of a lingcod.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. If there was a
0: sarcastic fringe head the size of a card, it would be a monster of the deep.
1: I don't think we would dive the spots. <sighs> We'd like veer away. But the sarcastics are my complete joy. And uh, um, swell sharks. Swell one, sharks are One cool. night at 10, 10 o'clock at night, we were at the 100-foot line again, and there was a divot. About the size of maybe half a basketball court, and there were 21 small swell sharks. 21, and oh, they cool. were they were maybe though know, 14 to 18 inches. That's tiny. They're pretty small. Yeah. So they don't hatch at that size, but obviously they hang around in the canyon at some size cohort, and then they all go up to lunch together at night. I've never seen it again. One time and one time only. And I've spent hours at that 100-foot line looking for him again. Never seen him again. Interesting. So that canyon is magic. So it's Like going to the carnival. Ooh, what, I wonder what's here today.
0: It is, it is a crapshoot. You never know. Like we said, I've seen uh, everything from a prickly shark to a giant Pacific seahorse. Or five. A prickly shark. God. Yeah. So yeah. if we had to say Claudette Dorsey has a favorite dive site in California, what would it be?
2: No pressure.
1: Um, old Marineland. What? Really? Really. Where? I love the point where the post is yeah, out at the point. Yeah, where they
0: have the pinnacles with the pinnacle. all the stuff.
1: I, just, I love it because it's so compressed. It's from 30 feet to 70 feet, and it's compressed into a narrow belt. If you can go far enough and get to Buchanan's, that's even better. Yeah. But it's a long way. But I just love the variety of the life, the sunlight, the kelp. The currents, the dolphin, the sea lions, the um, the huge groups of barracuda, juvenile barracuda that come through. Uh,
0: I never get the the visibility. I never get the visibility out there that I want.
1: Yeah, uh, you got to keep diving and diving and diving until it's great. And there were two years. I mean, your legs
0: are going to look amazing walking up and down that hill.
1: Um, I (laughs) I ended up at an orthopedic. Doc saying I have shin splints so bad I can't walk. Oh my god! And gosh. it was the anterior tendon in front. And I told him what I was doing, and he said, "Well, you need some different fins, number one." So I bought different fins. And what type of fins
0: the, did he recommend? Um, I'm the, curious. The
1: split fins, those crazy bio Apollo yeah. bio fins. So Interesting. I, I used those, and it definitely stopped me from hurting myself.
0: So, were you using what were you using before? Uh,
1: Quattro. I had the Mary's Quattros, just a nice lightweight plastic blade fin. Okay. Not the heavy ones um but i would just get into that butterfly or that what do you call it, flutter kick i'd get into the flutter kick on the surface and we'd just kick all the way out to the point drop down and then dive back okay so you wouldn't go in at the point over. if we could we would yeah but i don't like i don't like getting hurt so i that was
0: that was the one place i almost messed up my knee yeah i put my knee down and one side of my leg touched a rock oh on the side and the other leg touched a rock and my foot was not on the ground. So it had somehow gotten opposite sides pinched in a way that it was pushing my knee outward. Mm. And I just stopped it right before it got hurt. Oh, yeah. And oh, it was just a surge. big, it was a big scare.
1: The surge in those rocks is horrible. So I'll die from the point if it's a lake. Other yeah. than that, it's just shut up, go down to the beach and just shut up and kick. It's a 10 to 12 minute kick. We put, we put sunglasses in our pockets. I literally took sunglasses so I could kick on my back with sunglasses on. Oh, I bet. And uh, yeah, so I had to spend like two months kneeling and stretching on ice packs and it got better. It went away. Totally went away.
0: Do you still, do you still use uh, uh, split fins? No, no,
1: I went to GUE. Once, once I went ah, to, I got uh, so discipled rubber, you're, into GUE. So
0: you're with the rubber fin crowd oh, yeah,
1: now. Yeah. Okay. It's funny. It's the same fins I got certified with in 1977.
0: I'm a huge fan of the rubber fins. Yeah,
1: they give, and, you, they give you joy joystick precision control when you're hovering. There's nothing else like it.
0: I like to say it provides the torque to effort ratio is higher. Mm-hmm. And that means that you can use multiple styles of kicking in different, mm-hmm. in different environments, and you can rest some muscles. So if I'm kicking, you know, regular... Um,
1: Flutter kick. Yeah, flutter
0: kick. Thank you. If I'm kicking a regular flutter kick and my legs get tired, I'll just switch to frog kicking.
1: Yes. You can you do know? anything. Yeah. And, Except and... lay on your back and kick for long periods of time to yeah. get out to well, so far distance. I'll, fro- I'll
0: frog kick on my back. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is actually one of my preferred times to frog kick. Yeah. Everybody likes to flutter kick when they're on my back. I prefer to frog <laughs> kick. <laughs> yeah. It's just easy. It's relaxing. You know, it's, if you're not in a rush, it's fine. So I like the rubber fins, but some people hate them. Yeah. I think they take heavy. a little bit to get used to.
1: And if you're in a wetsuit, then it's a lot of weight. Um, you know, in a dry suit, I can always put air in my feet, so mm. if I need to balance them, it's okay. Yeah, I just got used to them. And in a dry suit, you just need that much power to move a dry suit through the water.
0: I typically also have a big stupid camera in front of me, so it's like a counterbalance. <laughs> I'm like a teeter-totter. Where's your scooter? Yeah, where is my scooter? <laughs> I have but, a long list of dive equipment to purchase these days, so.
1: Oh, yeah, sorry about Scootin that. no, it's okay. But truly, I think Marineland is my favorite site. I fell in love with it for six straight years when we had super cold water. It was yeah. 47 to 49 degrees, Ooh. and the nudibranchs were out of control. Oh, yeah. It was, I, 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 yeah, I've never seen it again that way.
0: I mean, we may never see water in California that cold again. Yeah. Which is a bummer. Because yeah. that's when a lot of the cool stuff
1: flourishes. It is. You, just, you, you go brain stupid because you're shivering so hard and you're so cold. But, uh, yeah, the beauty of super cold. It's so good for the kelp. But things change. Life
0: but changes. That's, the Channel Islands still have that. Mm-hmm. And it's worth it to go out on an overnight. It is. To go out to the Channel Islands and do two days of diving out there. And
1: it's the best. Three days is even better. Four days is better. I've not three. done a three-day out oh, in the Channel paradise. Islands. Yeah. It's paradise
0: i've done over i've done overnights in the channel before too mm-hmm. we did that for a shark diver. we did went out for the day uh chummed for sharks all day got nothing spent the night in the channel thought we were gonna basically get skunked the next day and at the end of the next day we got a big big like seven and a half foot blue shark and
1: this is in the open ocean this is between catalina and here like kelp were you looking for kelp patties or no just Just
0: dropping a chump line super fun i've done it a couple times uh there used to be a good organization out of san diego that was doing it and they had a pretty tight system and had really good um appearances like Mm -hmm. they could they could get sharks to come out and they would Kind of times of year would determine whether it was a mako or a blue. Wow. But to swim with those guys are super. I love swimming with blue sharks. Oh, they're just I'd super, super mellow. Uh, kind of just, you know, they're just not aggressive. They're just kind of curious. Um, are they
1: the ones with those bigger eyes. Do they sort of.
0: They have a big nose. nose. They have a big nose. They're very long and and lean shark. Uh, the makos are a little bit stockier and a little bit jerkier. Kind of twitch. Mm -hmm. um they have that you can just feel their kinetic energy just ready to pop okay uh and i've seen it pop like i've seen a we had a little tiny three-foot mako one time and it went from it cleared a distance of about 60 feet and a half a second to go after some bait fish and i was like that that just like just the realization at that moment was i have no control over whether or not this fish wants to bite me Mm -hmm. there's just there's no i don't have it (laughs) it's not like I'm going to fight it off with a knife. Nope. <laughs> I'm not going to punch it in the nose. And by the time I realize what's happening, this thing's going to be on me. So it, it's amazing how quick those fish are. But the blue sharks are way more mellow. And they're just kind of explore, so they'll poke you and bounce. And I have a couple, from that specific trip, I have a couple photos of blue shark noses that are just, like, right up on my dome board, and it's really Whoa. cool. Yeah, I mean, they're super cool. If you ever get a chance to do one of those, I highly recommend it. Some people get concerned that you're altering their feeding behaviors and things like that but usually with the blue sharks and the makos they're feeding down deep and in the afternoons they'll come up and that's when they'll pick up your scent and they'll come up and explore so they're not
1: maybe they're just coming to warm up
0: well they're they they're digesting all their squid from the deep Uh they come up to digest and then they pick up the scent of what you know Chum, right. but it's like, oh, an extra free meal. Why don't I show up and check it out? And it's just a bunch of us fools in the water going like, "Hey, yeah. let me take a picture of you."
1: Oh, I love it.
0: It's super cool, though. It's very cool. It's a great interaction with sharks. You do it without a cage. Yeah,
1: closer and than Guadalupe, definitely. No definitely cage.
0: closer than Guadalupe. Um, the only thing that I think is probably an easier shark dive is La Jolla in August with yes. the, with the leopard sharks, which is also very cool. I've
1: only done that a couple of times, and the Viz was about seven or eight feet.
0: Oh, that's good. Really? Oh, seven or eight feet, yeah. Oh, okay. I went out there one time where it was like three foot this.
1: And were you free diving or scuba?
0: No, we When we did it, we went out at Marine Mm Room, and there must have been 100 sharks out, Mm -hmm. and none of them were deeper than five feet.
1: Okay, so, okay. Super shallow. I encountered them after diving the shores and coming back Mm -hmm. in. Yes. And then on scuba... It, it wasn't any fun. They don't so come close. Noisy. They didn't come close. Yeah. And so five-foot viz was terrible. But when you're on the surface looking down, it's awesome. Or if you can, can, can hold your breath, if yeah. you
0: can get down, if you can okay. do a breath, get under, and just wait, they'll come upon you. What's
1: their season? When do they
0: uh mid July to oh, August
1: so like now
0: so right now um I was I'm currently working at a surf camp and I was coming in after helping a kid catch a wave and I was walking up in Santa Monica here and I saw a, a good sized 3 foot leopard wow. shark it was pretty cool so it's probably Should right about okay. now we're okay. warm enough at least up here we also saw what could have been we don't know for sure we saw a shark breach could have been a leopard shark could have been a white up in Santa Monica Bay, northern Santa Monica Bay, you see white juvenile white mm-hmm. sharks breach from time to time. So Oh,
1: they're out there. Yeah. You see all kinds of Chris, stuff. Chris Lowe just put out a three and a half minute video of the drone surveillance project he's oh working my on. He's only, did you see it?
0: No, but that guy's awesome. guy's awesome. He's I brilliant. really want to talk to him. He's
1: had low... Yes, definitely. I really he, want to talk he, to him.
0: I don't know if he'll bring himself down to a lowly podcast such as mine, yeah. but I've had... He, I, he spoke at uh, Pacific Wilderness's Dive Club mm-hmm. meeting. It was one of... The best, one of the best uh, discussions or, uh, like, explanations of white shirk populations in the Santa Monica Bay that I have ever heard. I I think it's a TED Talk that he does, too, uh but it is so good.
1: And I heard it with uh, uh, Sea Divers, the Sea Divers group, and I think it's a... It's his canned TED Talk, and it's spectacular. But it's so cool. And everything from the sea lions to the great whites and just the whole web that they live in. He's brilliant. So he's in the middle of a two-month drone surveillance on great whites and interactivity with where there's a lot of people in the water. And his advocacy is knowledge, knowledge, not not to frighten or demonize demonize anything, but to just be aware and to be calm And if you have to manage populations in these areas, then just plan ahead. Don't be reactive. Be proactive. I don't know where it's going, but this is a huge
0: project. He is going to be a gem to California for the the amount of knowledge that he's come up, because with the Marine Protected Act and how much we have increased the availability of white shark food sources.
1: Yes, sea lions. We got rid of the gill nets, so the sea lion population went crazy.
0: And so, you know, a couple years ago, everybody was like,
1: oh, the sea lions are dying, the sea and no, they did. It was a bad die-off, and they, they came they, back.
0: They died off, mm-hmm. but it, it was all young mm-hmm. because they were overpopulated for the environment.
1: The water was too warm, and their favorite it, fish didn't show up. Yeah, so they it pushed were eating, it way out. They were eating fish that had only one-third the fat of their yeah. normal fish. and Is so that what yeah, it was? The mothers couldn't make enough milk. The babies couldn't wean. They were all thin. And so either—I haven't tracked it since then, but Nadia, Nadia Drake— did a spectacular written essay oh, on okay. that entire science behind that, those bad couple of years.
0: But it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it definitely wasn't a sign that sea lions were in desperate need of help. No, absolutely. It was not the much. opposite
1: uh-huh.
0: is just, that there's so many, mm-hmm. they're so reproductive. They're so reproductive oh God, they're so and there's so many that mm-hmm. they were doing very well.
1: And they came out at that whole population explosion happened at a time where the white shark population was pretty small which meant they even were more successful. I'm telling you, I think it's going to change. And now there's more whites, and um, they're going to be more successful. I've seen one from my kayak. I've never seen one on scuba, but I saw one from my kayak. You saw a white? A white, about six to seven feet long, and I'm in a 14-foot kayak.
2: So Uh, that's not too
1: bad. No, it wasn't too bad. It was a fin sticking up and not moving. And I thought, is that an injured dolphin? Because I was looking for dolphin, and... uh, so I paddled closer and closer, and it was clear, blue skies, blue water, beautiful summer's day. And the fin turned. It was, I was looking at the tail of the fin. The fin turned. The whole animal turned. And I could see sunlight through the water and the perfect shape of a great white head. Ooh. And just this big, girthy barrel, seven feet. And I was eight feet from the fish at that point because I know my boat to the nose to where I am. I was almost touching it. That's cool, though. And it just turned. Towards you? Yes. And Ooh. my hands, I wanted to lean in, and I was suddenly going backwards. I don't know how it happened, but my hands started paddling backwards.
0: You mean you have a healthy sense of self-preservation? Apparently <laughs> I did.
1: <laughs> and I was simultaneously leaning forward and paddling backwards. Um, and then it just shook and went gone. down and disappeared.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: But they're out there. They're everywhere.
0: Just well, when we had the, don't uh, look uh, like a seal. That, when we had that El Nino maybe five years ago, and the water was so warm that all the population got pushed up into California. Yeah. I mean, people were surfing and seeing them every day. Everywhere. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. But the juveniles are not the one you really no, want to worry about. Fish. Yeah, you want to worry about the big ones. Yeah. Which the only time that I know of people seeing those guys are on the backside of Catalina. Well, Catalina. Mm-hmm. Particularly the backside. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a great video. Of- Do you know Kareem? Yes. He's a gooey guy. Yeah,
1: he was, he was my assistant instructor for my, Jew, my fundamentals class.
0: Super yeah. nice guy. Yeah. I've only had a couple interactions with him. Yeah, he's good awesome. He, he was with a group of people who uh, were doing a net cleanup, I believe, mm-hmm. or diving on one of the... The Infidel. The Infidel. Yes. On the backside. Oh,
1: that one, that one, where they had a shark at their deco stop? Yes. A great white? A
0: 16-footer, yeah. and it yeah. was circling wide. And then a little closer, and then a little closer. And I believe they were, the guys who took the video were all on Mm rebreathers. And one of the the gas guys came down and saw it, snapped a photo, and the shark left. Yeah. But it was a big old 16-footer. You want to talk about... When you're like, what's my deco stop?
1: Yeah. How long do I have to stay here? Oh,
0: big 16-footer, man. That's an amazing yeah. creature.
1: We saw, um, I didn't get to see it, but somebody saw a 14 to 15-footer as we were rising up from the SM-2. Uh, it's an oil exploration ship. Where was uh, that at? It's a wreck up near Point Conception. Oh, okay. One of the dive clubs uh, has been running a trip out there every single year for several years now. So you get to dive the wreck of the Gosford in Coho Anchorage, just below Point Conception. And then you do the 70 foot dive on this upside down oil exploration ship that went down in 1954 or something in a, in a storm. Oh, um, and it's dark, cold, roiling water. Ooh. And uh, somebody above me came up to the boat and said, OK, that was interesting, and guaranteed that it was a 14 foot great white. It came so close. He said it was very easy to estimate its size. He said, and I just clung <laughs> to the rope. He said I wrapped my arms around the anchor line, and I just kept watching because there was nothing I could do. <laughs> so, and he said that's oh, the worst. That's the worst downfall to uh, solo diving is there's no one there to see your shark.
0: <laughs> oh, that is so just tightening.
1: And, and nothing happened. Yeah, nothing happened.
0: Most well, you don't hear from the people when something does happen.
1: No, um. <laughs> I mean, nothing usually happens. They're magnificent.
0: They're Um, magnificent creatures. We also don't, I think scuba divers have the advantage of, we don't act like prey. No. Uh, Free divers, they -hmm. have a problem, and surfers have a problem. They Mm -hmm. both run away from the shark, trigger that, you're prey, you're running away, I'm going to get you, and, you know, unknowingly, Mm -hmm. and so that's that's when we see a lot more attacks by sharks, which we don't even see that many in California, despite the rising population. But hopefully we don't get to the point where it is like it is in Australia. Yeah. Be. I mean, you never know. You know, it just depends on, I, and I haven't looked at it as extensively as I should. I don't know. We may not be in the situation where our recreation overlaps enough with uh, hunting areas. The so feeding grounds. Yeah, yeah, feeding grounds.
1: And we've got all the juveniles here and very few big ones. Yeah, up out north of the islands, they want the. They, I think they want those deep, elephant seals. Yes,
0: the the high fat content thing. Exactly. Even the sea lions, even though they're fat, fatty, and they'll go after them from time to time. It seems like the major concentration for the adults are the elephant seals. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Why eat an apple when you could go and have a hot fudge sundae?
0: It's like
1: <laughs> that's where the food is.
0: Oh, but it's I amazing.
1: Yeah.
0: It's amazing. I I still want to see one underwater. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to do any like. If I saw one on a boat, I don't know if I would have the guts to get in the water with them
2: yeah.
0: without a cage. I don't know. I like, there's part of me that likes to think that I would that be that gung-ho, but I have the same feeling about like getting in the water with transient orcas. Yeah. I'm no, like, it's... they might just decide that day that they're going to mess with you. Yeah, and, and if I'm, like, I'm
1: already in the water, I've decided to always be calm. Yeah. Get low, stay calm. Yeah, I have that I mindset. Wouldn't, I wouldn't go with in on happens. purpose. I would not go in on purpose. Seems like unnecessary risk. Yes. Because <laughs> but... then people would laugh at you later going, look what how stupid could Jenny possibly be?
0: They would hang a Darwin Award on my gravesite. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. Yes. I <laughs> like to avoid that. <laughs> I've got a lot more diving to do.
0: No kidding. Well... Claudette, this was an amazing talk. Thank you, Thank you so I, much for coming in.
1: I thoroughly enjoyed it. To talk to someone who loves the ocean so much and loves the how people interact with it—it's just a complete joy. Oh,
0: likewise. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and you know, I
1: can't—the
0: the contributions that people make to the the ocean um, that better it for everybody else. The, the work you've done on these committees, the reef check thing, I think it's fantastic.
1: We all talked about that in our very first class. They said, we've been waiting for something where I can give back in a meaningful way. Yeah. And there's other organizations who do occasional observations or they have uh, festivals of education. But to have a citizen opportunity to give back it for science that manages the habitat you love so much, we just couldn't stop talking about it.
0: So if somebody wanted to get involved with something like reef check, what would you think say is the best way to go about it? Oh, like... if,
1: um, hopefully you're live some, living somewhere near the coast because they that do would a lot help. of they do a lot of their surveys from the beach. Okay. Um, some of them are from boat dives. So we do have some people who live two or three miles or two or three hours inland mm-hmm. and they just plan ahead and they come and do the boat dive surveys. Uh, but if you're anywhere near the coast, a huge opportunity to be a beach diver. They do all of their training from February to April into may each year so in the springtime when the water's a little bit rough uh, we're not ready to survey yet is when they do all of their training and then the surveys usually start in the end of march april so as you finish then you can start signing up for surveys so we survey from march april all the way through to about october once in a while there'll be a november survey at the end of the year And and then we take the winter off so december january february is dark and then you start up again in the spring
0: so, if it's somebody fun. wanted to get involved,
1: reefcheck.org. You know,
0: and just look up training or volunteer opportunities. Yep. it's a
1: great website. There's a couple of fun things on it. They have the indicator species, and they can show you the 27 fish you get to learn, the 32 invertebrates, the seven species of seaweed. There's some really cool videos on there. And there's something called the Near Shore Ecosystem Database, NED. And it ta- you can literally see in beautiful graphic, infomatic form all of the survey results over. 12 years now
0: what a cool resource
1: it is fabulous to be able to look at the changes they can track how an area where it went under MPA protection suddenly the kelp bass there were more large ones and without protection there were more small ones and they could track the numbers you could see the changes
2: that's awesome
1: so it's a good resource site and then under you go look under training and the, all the uh, schedules are up there and awesome. they keep the price down they they support you with partial funding for a lot of the training when we do boats, I think instead of spending $120 for the day, uh, they ask for a donation of 50 So it's a nice way to do a little more diving with less cost yeah. and with a group of people who know what you know and love what you love, and that sense of team and camaraderie is fabulous. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, thank
0: you again, and I appreciate you coming in. Hopefully we'll get to get, have you on here again.
1: Talk, talk some more. My pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ian.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember... Please subscribe. We're a monthly podcast, so it may be a minute till the next one comes out, but have it come to you. Just hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much.